I've made a, uh, a couple of just absolutely terrible errors. I have asked Marco Armand for advice on things to buy. <laughs> related to absolutely nothing at all. You know, ATP, member, ATP membership is a thing. If you wanted to go to atp.fm slash join, you could join and be a member of this very program. He's recommending relatively inexpensive things now, though, right? In, in my defense, the most expensive pair of headphones I recommended was only $700. Oh, the head... I thought you were talking about the flashlights. Who was asking no, about the flashlights? Well, there's so both. Yeah. That was Casey, yeah, Casey was asking about the flashlights, too. <laughs> yeah, no, I've brought this on myself. I have made this bed. This is not really Marco's just, fault. Just ignore his headphone advice when he tries to get you buy a $1,000 pair of headphones. You can just ignore that and go to the next level. None of them were $1,000, and I recommended one that was like 180 and one that was like 300 One was 899 or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said that's, the, that's what I use, but I wasn't saying he should buy it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a different kind than what he wants it's just i've known marco for 20 25 years something like that at this point maybe even more than that yeah maybe <laughs> but anyways you would think well i guess the first 15 of those years didn't count because neither of us had money but yeah exactly you would think <laughs> you would think in the last 10 years i would know better than to ask marco for advice and in marco's defense both of these times i specifically solicited the advice uh, i have not Hold any, any well. I shouldn't use that phrase, uh, turn of phrase. I've not made any moves on uh, on either of these items, but I did put a seventy dollars flashlight, which, if I recall, I'll put in the show notes. I put a seventy dollars flashlight quietly into uh, the Amazon shopping cart, and within a day, Aaron said to me, "What is the seventy dollars flashlight? Why do you think you need it?" <laughs> I hope none of the product photos have like a person's hand for scale. Because that's not going to help your case. No, it's really not. It's like next to a quarter. It's like, wait, what? Is this a doll's flashlight? <laughs> Is this a flashlight made for ants? They're not big. No, they're, they're oh way smaller God. than you think they are. Oh, my word. But anyway, it, you would think after all this time, I would know better than to ask Marco for help. Because the problem with asking Marco for help when it comes to purchases is that you will be spending considerably more money than you would like to spend. Well, do you want something good? It's like if people come to me and they're like, what should I buy that's good? And then I tell them and they're like, that's a lot of money. Yeah, because it's good. Well, there, there is a discontinuity or at least a, a uh, an area of that graph where the two lines diverge and do not, uh, do not ascend <laughs> at the same rate. And you, very often your recommendations are past that point. I wouldn't say very often. The problem, though, is that it, it, it is often, it is often if not nearly always, that the thing that Marco suggests is very, very good. It's better, but, you know, the it was like quality and price were tracking pretty nicely with each other with a similar slope. And then at a certain point... <laughs> Price starts going up a little bit steeper, and then you just follow that graph out to the right for a while, and all of a sudden you're like, well, it is better. Mm-hmm. Like my Mac Pro, basically. It's, it's, that's where my Mac Pro <laughs> Yeah, is. right. Yeah, like you can talk. <laughs> I know. Well, once every 10 years, I buy something like Marco. How often do you buy a flashlight or a pair of headphones? Not that often. Fair enough. Yeah, I solicited this advice because um, it's a long and involved story that I will cut down as, as much as possible. Basically, there is a old tra- train tunnel that um, is being turned into a rail trail park thing. And by giving, like by donating a very small amount of money, I have gotten the, uh, the perk of being allowed to tour it before it opens, uh, presumably this fall. And this train tunnel, I mean, it's something like a mile long and it's pitch black in there. And I have flashlights, but I have 
crappy like 10 or 20 dollar flashlights i don't have something that would illuminate a mile long train tunnel and this flashlight will not it well might but probably won't illuminate a mile long train tunnel no it's not made for long throw it's made for wide illumination of where you are right which actually is probably better you can get some that are made for like super long throw but then they have like a narrower beam sure and so i asked marco hey you know i need something that'll last me something like you know an hour and a half and that'll be pretty damn bright what do you got and so he recommended and we i will put in the show notes the olight sr2 1150 lumens usb magnetic rechargeable variable output slides olight s2r baton 2 isn't that what i said you said sr2 which sounds like a car <laughs> or sr71 right that's not a car <laughs> or a flashlight he was thinking mr2 and so but the funny thing is <laughs> yes. I, I wanted i wanted to see a, an example of it in use and marco very uh, graciously said he would record a video and did end up recording a video of it uh, at nighttime, and it was very impressive. That will not be in the show notes. But I, you know, did a YouTube search to see like an example of this in action. And of course, do you remember the name? I'll have to dig it up. The the name of the the channel I ended up on. It was like Sensible Prepper or something like that. Is <laughs> in as in like Doomsday Prepper. And I realized, oh, this is not good. This is not good for me at no. all. Well, there's there, the problem with researching any kind of like you know. Let me get a nice flashlight. Flashlights are part of the, quote, everyday carry uh, community, mm-hmm. and that very quickly leads you to guns and gun people. And I just have – I want nothing to do with that side of it. And so, like, it's really hard to get good <laughs> opinions and reviews of anything that even goes near the everyday carry type category of, like, useful little gear things to have that maybe fit in a bag. And it's like it, you so quickly fall into, like, a crazy rabbit hole of communities and priorities that you don't have and don't want to be in. <laughs> That's so true. But I mean, but he, he he's a sensible prepper, so it's okay. Mm, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's like a uh, compassionate conservative, right? Yeah, that's like <laughs> <laughs> I have an, a, a big apology to make. Mm. We have gotten so much feedback, way more than I expected, on an audio problem in last week's show. Indeed. Last week, there were some, I believe, cicadas. Is that right, John? Never found them, but yeah, some kind of critter. Yeah, some kind of, you know, August bugs. Uh, It sounded like, you know, cicada bug noise on parts of John's track. And I noticed this during the edit. And normally, I'd be able to remove such noise during the edit, and nobody would ever know. This time, I tried a couple of ways to remove it, my, my usual techniques to do it. And I just couldn't get it out without, like, totally crushing the rest of his high-frequency audio and making him sound very weird. And so I thought, you know what? It won't be that big of a deal. Let me just leave it in. Maybe nobody will notice. Everybody noticed. <laughs> We're still getting messages <laughs> on Twitter, via email, saying, like, hey, there's some kind of noise. It's something wrong with the recording on John's track. If you have people saying it was really hard to listen to, that they thought something was wrong with their car. Um, and so I am so sorry. Uh, I later... Edited, I later re-edited the file, and uh, so if you re-downloaded it after a certain point, uh, you would have gotten the edited version that didn't have the cicada noise. Um, basically, after the first few hours of it being out, some people recommended some different techniques. Uh, what I ended up doing um, was basically a band pass, um, but yeah, notching out like only like the seven to eight thousand ish frequency range that these bugs were in, um, with a method that was working better than what I was doing before. So anyway, uh, so the fixed version is out, and I greatly apologize. The funny thing is, I was actually really nervous that people would notice an audio problem last week because 
I was using a new microphone for the first time in probably four years. Oh, I didn't notice. No one noticed. <laughs> Thank God. Like, I was, I was kind of hoping nobody would like have a problem with it or it wouldn't be a big shift for anybody. Um, but it mattered a lot to me to get this right. And we got zero people noticing that because everybody was noticing these very loud... <laughs> <laughs> like bug noise on John's track. <laughs> and to answer some questions from the chat room and elsewhere. Yes, I mean literal insects. There are literal living insect creatures outside my house somewhere making noise. Um, and yes, I have all my windows closed. And no, this is not normal. The reason I suspect cicadas is because I think in my area it's a cicada season. Like I pretty much never see cicadas around here. We found a couple of dead ones on the sidewalk in our travels over the past couple of weeks. So I think this is you know anomalous like we, it's it's unexpected for us to have any bugs that make this level of noise and further unexpected for them to be so loud that you know despite being closed into my little podcasting sarcophagus here with all the windows closed and no air conditioning on and everything all sealed up still they were so loud they were just coming through the windows and walls of this building into into my microphone that should only be picking up like my voice from six inches away Oh yeah, right. You have the world's <laughs> most sensitive microphone. It just it, you have a large diaphragm condenser. Like mm-hmm. that should pick up everything in the universe and for some reason every other week it doesn't. Every other week your audio is perfect and I have no idea how cuz that kind of microphone I can't get to work right in my rooms ever. Cuz I'm in a room with like carpeting and a bookshelf and weird shaped walls and there's lots of stuff to absorb the sound. But you know, I mean, yes it does pick up a lot, but when I get far away from the mic it gets quieter, right? So this bug like it was loud for a bug, but still, it's outside, and all the windows are closed, and so it's not that loud. I'm amazed. I'm kind of amazed that it showed up on the track at all, but obviously it did. Yeah. So, anyway, my apologies to everybody. Uh, I will be a little more aggressive in the future about trying to remove things like that that I think nobody will notice. <laughs> we are sponsored today by Hey.com. Email should not be overwhelming. Email has been broken for a long time. But Hey.com fixes it. So for one thing, you screen your calls, so why don't you screen your emails? When you get an email from a new sender, it ends up in the screener in Hey. Thumbs up, and they're let in. Thumbs down, and you'll never hear from them again. You can also, if you want people to skip that process, you can give them your speakeasy code, and they're allowed in instantly like a club. And privacy is super important to Hey. Hey is not an email client. It's a full-on service provider, and they will never read your emails or sell your information to companies or show you ads ever. Gmail and Yahoo cannot say the same thing. Hey also cares so much about your privacy that they will automatically block the vast majority of tracking pixels. Marketers and salespeople are spying on you all the time, trying to see when and where you open up your emails so they can send you more stuff and steal even more of your attention and privacy info. Not only does Hey block these spy trackers, but they'll even notify you when someone is trying to spy on you and even tell you which spy tool they are using. I love that. (laughs) So try it today at Hey.com and you will get a 14-day free trial. So you can poke around, try it out, see for yourself what all the fuss is about, hey.com is really, really nice. Once again, try it today, 14-day free trial at hey.com. Thank you so much to Hey for being a pretty cool email service and for sponsoring our show. Uh, Mac Rumors, not the website, just the th- rumors about Macintoshes. Uh, apparently today is the day, and <laughs> as we record this at 9 o'clock in the evening on August 19th, 
Uh, it, I guess, you know, West Coast is always a little behind, and so maybe something will happen. But we were told at some point recently that we would get a new iMac, new AirPod Studio, new HomePod 2, new HomePod Mini. Have any of those things happened, gentlemen? We got a new iMac, mm-hmm. but not on August 19th. And yeah, I just wanted to swap this down. I don't want to attribute to any source, like whatever, because we, 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 we talked about it on the, on whatever that show was, like a couple of, a couple of episodes ago, just because, it was such a huge dump of rumor info. It's like, wow, someone's really laying it all on the line with all these announcements and dates. And now I think we can just ignore it forever because August 19th has come and gone and these things didn't happen. And even though the iMac did happen, it didn't happen on August 19th. So, so much for the Nostradamus-like prediction filled with dates. And then would you like to add a clarification about the thing you were trying to quote last week? This is the reason I think people should listen to our podcast, because we're the only podcast in which one of the hosts will try to cite a half-remembered saying from a shareware website that is really comes from something in ancient history that I couldn't even remember. And then a listener will write in to tell us, uh, I know which saying you were talking about, and also turns out, as they say, the popular uh, notion of the saying is a mistranslation. So here we go. This is Nate Mavis, who says, the quote you were reaching for is from Socrates, not Aristotle, and it's from Apology 30B. I have no idea about how classics work. Apology 30B? Do they like number and letter? Anyway, that's a thing. Um, (laughs) You have construed it as some ancient scholars have. Being virtuous will lead to wealth and other good things. This was me talking about like Apple should concentrate on just trying to make good stuff and, and then they'll be successful because of that instead of the other way around, right? He says, but that's an incorrect translation. Socrates says, rather, that virtue makes wealth good. Not virtue will make wealth and other good things for you. Think of what you tell a kid playing against cheaters. If you cheat to win, winning isn't good. Playing by the rules virtuously is what makes winning good. So MF Bernie proposes his interpretation in a paper from 2012, which we will link in the show notes, and no other tech podcast will. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and Nate says, I spent the chunk of my dissertation defending it in detail, and now I'm in software. I leave it up to you which interpretation is more relevant to Apple's situation today. So there you go. I meant the first sense that being virtuous will lead to wealth and other good things. But uh, the other, perhaps more correct interpretation is also applicable, I think. That is actually very interesting. And I agree. You will not hear anyone else talk about that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So there was some uh, hubbub in the last day or two. And I saw that this video existed, but I didn't get a chance to watch Apparently, somebody has dropped a Big Sur beta onto a Lenovo touchscreen-enabled, um, I presume ThinkPad, but a Lenovo laptop, and the touchscreen worked? Question mark. What's going on here? So, I don't. Uh, first of all, let me start by saying I have no idea if this video is real. Um, but if it is real, the like the, the the pitch of the video is yeah. Of course, if a touchscreen laptop works and you touch it, like maybe it would just interpret that as mouse, as mouse movement or mouse clicking, and then you know why wouldn't it work? But if you watch the video, the whole point is that the person in the video performs gestures like pinch to zoom in like the, the, the maps application in Mac OS and the gestures work in, in the big Sur beta on this laptop. Again, I have no idea if it's real or not. The reason I included it here and we'll put a link to the video is just so you can see what it might look like for, <laughs> for, you know, what, in what context might touch be useful on a Mac with a touch screen, because whether it's real or not, you can see someone using a laptop with Mac OS on it with real Mac OS apps. And occasionally, pulling at the screen now the performance and responsiveness seems atrocious it's almost like is it working is it not working and you see it's kind of working so it's it looks really terrible but a it's it's on a lenovo who knows what kind of support this is b it might not even be real and c it's a beta so i thought it was mostly a curiosity but it's interesting to see like 
one of the first videos in the wild showing real hard, presumably real hardware and real software, uh, showing someone touching a Mac in the screen. Additionally, there's uh, some changes with regard to the menu bar icon spacing. I can never remember what these things in the upper right are called. What is there menu, a name for menu them? extras, menu bar okay. icons? Uh, they're, they're, I think menu extras is what Apple calls them, or what they used to be called under the covers. Anyway, we talked about this when we talked about Big Sur. That yes, there are, you know all the different things being spaced out for touch, right? And we mentioned the menu. This is not a new feature. The very first Big Sur bit had this in it. But here is Ricardo Mori on Twitter uh, complaining about the new spacing, not because you know necessarily he minds that it's like spread out so it's easy for your fingers to touch but now they take up more room and so here's a little screenshot uh you can see in his tweet where he says my icons used to take up about this amount of room but now that they all have a huge amount of white space between them on a 13 inch laptop like the icons take up like more than half of the menu bar and so if you have an app with a lot of menus they're going to clash in the middle and your icons are going to get hidden and it's inconvenient so this is this is the downside to sort of spreading mac os out for finger spacing or whatever whatever it is they're doing whether they're doing it for finger spacing or not bottom line is they're spreading stuff out there's all the new large controls the menu bar can be enlarged the menu icons are spread out from each other and if you have a laptop with a small screen suddenly it feels even smaller because there's all this extra white space between things so it would be kind of neat to have an option to sort of collapse that spacing if you don't have a touchscreen mac or if you just you know don't plan on touching your menu bar icons but Somehow, I don't see that option forthcoming. Yeah, it, it's so hard not to conclude that touch is coming to macOS because it seems like so many of these changes are curious, if not dumb, if it, if that wasn't the end goal. And typically, Apple does quietly orchestrate their future plans. You know, things like auto layout is a great example. You know, we, it used to be that, that Apple didn't care if you laid everything out, you know, b- by the pixel or point. And then they started saying before we got bigger phones, you know, you might want to just think about like a relative layout where you're where you're anchoring things to other things. And that might be a good call. And then fast forward a few months and suddenly we had bigger iPhones. And so it, it certainly seems that, that, that we're getting touchscreen Macs or some sort of alternate input mechanism, if not touch. But I don't know. If not, this seems like such a weird choice to just add all this white space everywhere. I don't know. Finally, John, you're having problem with your rubbers. Yikes. Yeah. This is, I spent all that time, and we talked about it on the show, I don't know, six months ago or something, picking out a mouse, try, trying a bunch of mice, seeing if, which I felt were comfortable because I wanted a new one with my fancy new computer when I got my Mac Pro. My, I was using an ancient mouse and it was just not great. Uh, and I eventually settled on the Microsoft Precision mouse, which, you know, had some trade-offs out of all the ones I tried. It was the one I liked the best. I even, after that, I'd used it for like a month or so. And I even considered doing the cheese grater thing, the actual physical thing that grates cheese from a cow, <laughs> um, <laughs> and buying multiples, right? Because I'm like, well, I like this mouse. I found a mouse that I liked. It took a lot of, you know, buying multiple uh, mice to see to see if I could find one. You know, but I found one I like. So why don't I, you know, maybe they'll stop making this one or maybe they'll change it in a way I don't like. Maybe I should buy multiples. But I didn't because I figured, well, I don't know. I used the last mouse for like 15 years or something. Uh, I don't. You know, I, I'm not going to wear. I, I don't need to buy a new one. Like if, if 15 years go by and I need to get another mouse, I'll do the research again. But now, for for a little while, I felt like there was like some kind of schmutz or something on the side of my mouse, and occasionally I would like scrape it with my fingernail to like get that schmutz off of there, and it would like 
go away or whatever. But eventually I, I felt some of this thing under my thumb, under my, you know, my left thumb gripping the mouse. And I tried smoothing it away and it didn't really go away. And so then I said, let me pick this. Let me look at it. I looked at the mouse and it wasn't schmutz. The side of this Microsoft mouse, the entire like left side and the right side for that matter, is like rubber coated. It's like plastic. The whole mouse is plastic, but it's like rubber coated plastic on the sides for grip, which I like. It's very comfortable and it's a very smooth rubber. But it is apparently so soft and smooth and velvety that the act of me just using my mouse and having my left thumb in like that same position on the side of the mouse, you know, which is how I use it. I'm a, I'm a side mouse gripper kind of person has worn doesn't worn it away, but has worn a little like first it's like a little bit of a slightly shinier, smooth spot. And then there's like this little lip that I'm it's not a lip. It's not the edges. It's the center of the rubber. And I have just made like a little rough patch with my thumb. And I'm like, oh, no. I haven't even had this mouse that long. This is not going to last 15 years. So I don't know what I'm going to do about this. I mean, the mouse is fine. And if now that I just know that's what it is, I don't pick at it, right? It's not like I've worn through it in a hole and it's not like it's peeling off. It's just a little bit worn in that area. If it would wear evenly, you know, like a baseball glove or something, just kind of wear down and get a patina, that would be fine. <laughs> but when it wears so that it has like a little, a little flaky kind of, rough bit i don't really like that so i don't know what i'm gonna do about this but i just wanted to update everybody on my mouse woes that apparently buying five different mice and trying them each for weeks was insufficient and this is the thing with i think about this with product reviews all the time if you're doing a product review for a product review website or even just for yourself and your life it's very difficult to know conclusively what is a good product from just using it for like a couple of weeks especially if it's something that you intend to keep for a long time right like say a cheese grater for your kitchen, that kind. Um, I love you have to say that every time. Now. I mean, I can't because I want you to, you know. Anyway, um, and you buy it, you grate a bunch of cheese, you do timing tests, you do like, this was the easiest, we got the least tired doing it, it made the even, evenest, you know, gratings, whatever. It was machine washable and it was like all all this, you know, dishwasher safe rather. Um, you say all these things about it and you're like, this is the one. And then you publish that article and then you know, you go off and forget about it, and one of your employees takes home the cheese grater, and then six months later, it breaks. I feel like you have to go back to the article and say, don't buy this cheese grater. It breaks in six months, right? It's not the best one. Yes, it had the best performance when it was working, like, you know, it's like Casey's BMW. Yeah, it's good when it's working, yep. but if, if it oh, dies yes. all the time, it's not actually the best choice. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm disappointed in my Microsoft mouse. I did some Googling, and I found uh, someone with the exact complaint uh, for a Microsoft mouse saying, I used it for a little while and it wore in the exact same spot, but it's not actually my mouse. It's an earlier Microsoft mouse with rubber stuff on the side. I think they just use very soft touch rubber for it to be like expensive feeling and nice. And it is expensive feeling and nice, but I think that soft touch rubber is not particularly durable. So, and it's not like you can replace the rubber on the side or anything. So I don't know what I'm going to do. I like this mouse enough that I would probably just like buy a new one every couple of years. If after a couple of years, it becomes dire. But, yeah, so hard to find good mice these days. We are sponsored this week by Raycon. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you drop hundreds of dollars on a pair, check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. Raycon's earbuds start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market, and they sound just as amazing as the other top audio brands you know. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet, with six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass than before, and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. 
And Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, they are perfect for conference calls or binging on podcasts. Raycon's earbuds are also both stylish and discreet, with no dangling wires or big stems to distract anyone during video calls. So now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash accidental tech. That's buyraycon.com slash accidental tech for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash accidental tech. Thank you so much to Raycon for sponsoring our show. The drama continues. Actually, if you'll give me about 90 seconds, I need to go pop some more popcorn. Epic and Apple still killing each other. Where did we leave off? Where did where were our intrepid heroes the last we spoke? I don't even remember. It's been such a blur of anger. It was basically the very first night that this had come out, and they had sued Apple and Google. Um, right, but no, right. nothing else had really happened yet. Uh, you know, Fortnite had been taken down from the store, yes. but if you still had it installed, it was fine, and that's all that had happened. There had been the lawsuits, there had been the video release. Fortnite was off the store, but if you still had it, you could still play it. Right. And there, right, were, so there, was, so there was a bunch of context that, that we didn't actually have time to get to, and we'll probably go into it uh, shortly here. Um, but yeah, so Casey, sorry, what's what's new this week? <laughs> so I, I may leave something out, but as best I understand, what's new this week is that, uh, you know, like we said, Fortnite is removed from the App Store, and Apple has told Epic that they have until a week from Friday, so the 28th, to basically cut this shit out and start acting nice again. And if they don't, apparently their entire development account, their developer account will be taken away, which means they won't be able to use Xcode. Well, they won't be able to do anything really with Xcode. They won't be able to do anything with any Apple platforms. And that would be a pretty serious bummer. And I'm still not clear whether or not there would be a trickle effect on the Unreal Engine, which we can talk about a little bit more what that is in a moment. But this is the, uh, as I think Gruber has described it, and or maybe it was Jason Snell, the nuclear option that, you know, th- this is the Apple saying you can go outside and play hide and go screw yourself option. And so that's what Apple has done. And there's been, you know, there's been a lot of all of the talking heads like us going around and around and around about what makes sense, what's fair, what's not fair. And I, I think there's a lot more to talk about the, about this case specifically, but God help me, for the first time, I think, in my entire life, I actually sat down earlier tonight and tried to do like a poor man's mind map to try to figure out what is really going on here, because I feel like there are maybe five different arguments that are all happening at the same time and are all interrelated about, you know, whether or not 30% is fair, whether or not app review is fair, whether or not Apple is being a retaliatory baby and so on. And I was going to try to force us to pick these apart one by one. And I, I just don't think we'll be able to do it because they are so intertwined. But something I think that's been very difficult for me is picking apart and separating these different concerns and and maybe we'll try to do that. Just try to keep an eye on that as we as we discuss further. Uh, I don't know. That's kind of the executive summary. Uh, where would you gentlemen like to go from here, John? Do you have immediate thoughts? Yeah, like I think before we start talking about the other stuff, uh, we'll just talk about the threatened punishment, right? So Apple said, what was it? Where they're going to terminate their developer account? Um, 
And so, I mean, the first question may be, is that a thing that Apple can do? And the answer, of course, before you even look it up, you know, is yes, because all those terms and conditions that everybody just clicks through in every service that you ever click through terms and conditions on, I guarantee you they all say, we can do whatever we want and you have no recourse. Like, that's what they all say. Um, and you agree to that because what are you going to do? Not agree. I mean, you could not agree and not be a developer, right? But like, uh, it, most companies are able to put language in all of their agreements for all of their sort of third party, you're going to do stuff on our platform that basically says, if you, if we don't like what you do, or even if we do like for any reason, we could just wake up in the morning and decide, you know what? We don't like you today. We can take away all your things because that's just the nature of the agreement. Apple's got the things you want access to their things. This is the agreement, right? So yes, the agreement says they can do this. And then in the agreement says, this is what it means if we do this. If we terminate your account, uh, it says you will lose access to the following programs, technologies, and capabilities. Um, obviously, in these legal agreements, very often terms are defined elsewhere. So you have to kind of look up what they mean. So this first thing that I'm going to read is going to sound bad, but I'm sure it's defined elsewhere to be not as broad as you think. So you will lose access to the following all apple software comma now obviously you're not losing access <laughs> to all apple software because that would mean like you'd go into the apple store to try to buy an iphone they'd be like are you tim sweeney get out of here <laughs> you lose access to all. or they'd give you an iphone with no software on it like you can have this iphone but no software for you all right but anyway all it, this it, the sentence reads differently it's all apple software comma sdks comma apis comma and developer tools now i think that's maybe just poorly written or apple software is a term defined elsewhere though the s is not capital so anyway you don't get to use the developer tools and stuff. Um, I'm skipping over a bunch of stuff just to get to the media stuff. Um, one of the things you lose access to is the notarization service for macOS apps. Now, remember, it's not like you have an iOS developer account and a macOS developer account and a tvOS developer account, although at various times there have been distinctions related to platforms. You essentially have a developer account. A developer account is a thing that puts apps on the stores. Now, companies can have multiple developer accounts, I imagine, depending on how many legal entities they have, and we'll get all into that in a second. But anyway, they have a developer account, right? So this agreement is not specific to saying, you know, if, if you get a developer account, you can make any of the kind of apps. You know, Marco can make a Mac app, I can make an iOS app, like from our own single developer account if we want it. It's not limited by platform. So when they terminate the agreement, of course it's going to say, we terminate your access to the notarization service. You can't make notarized apps because you don't have a developer account, right? And it seems weird because we're talking about an iOS app, you know, Fortnite on iOS and iPadOS, right? But now you're losing access to macOS things. Like you can't notarize a macOS app. It's like you weren't even mad at us about a Mac app, right? We're talking about, it doesn't matter. It's This is the developer agreement. You lose access to de developer ID signing certificates, so not only can you not notarize an app, which is like sort of giving it the Apple stamp of approval by sending it out to Apple and then they sign it and send it back. You can't even sign it yourself with your own developer ID certificate. So developer ID is where the developer can just sign an application and give it to somebody and it'll run even though Apple hasn't signed off on it, right? Um, you lose access to, to the Universal App Quick Start program, which is the thing that gives you the DTK. So if you've got a DTK, you have to send it back to us. You can't have that anymore. Uh, and then finally... This is a little extra FU for Epic. Uh, you lose access to engineering efforts to improve hardware and software performance of Unreal Engine on Mac and iOS hardware. So what Apple is saying is, up until now, we here at Apple have worked on our stuff, on like our OSs and our 3D engines and our drivers and all that stuff, you know, our, our 3D, uh, you know, driver software and everything so that it performs well with Unreal Engine, because Unreal Engine, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is a very popular engine for 3D applications on many platforms, and it has been important for Apple for Unreal Engine-based software to run well on Mac and iOS hardware. 
So what Apple is saying is not only are we going to terminate all this stuff and not give you access to any of our dev tools or anything, also we're going to stop making sure that Unreal Engine runs really well on our products. <laughs> Which, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, well, most people don't get that kind of service from Apple where you make some kind of third-party <laughs> library and then Apple spends its own resources making sure that your library runs really fast on their hardware. But that just goes to show the nature of, of Unreal Engine. And what Casey was getting at before is like, okay, given all of this, this is the this is the agreement, they take away all this stuff. What does that actually mean aside from like Fortnite's not on the App Store anymore? Does it mean, for example, that other applications that use Unreal Engine are going to have problems? And, you know, briefly, Unreal Engine is a 3D engine that you can license from Unreal, from Epic, um, and use it to build a game on because 3D engines are really hard to make. And Epic has, uh, Epic's Unreal Engine has been really good for many, many years. It comes with all sorts of stuff. It comes with an entire development environment for you to make your game. It's how a single-person developer shop can make a good-looking 3D game. They don't, that single person is not writing the 3D engine from scratch. They're licensing an engine and then building a game on top of it. And it gives you much more than just the 3D engine. It gives you physics and scripting and, like I said, an entire IDE. It's a very complicated, big thing. Um, and uh, the Unreal Engine actually has really nice licensing terms where I think it's, like, free to use until your game makes over a million in revenue. And then after that, uh, Epic gets, like, 3% of your revenue or something. But it's used all over the place. It's used on consoles. It's used on PC games. And it's used on iOS games and Mac games and, you know, the, the whole nine yards, right? So on the App Store now are many, many games that are built on Unreal Engine. Does this happening to Epic, like them, their developer account being terminated, does that mean that anything bad happens to applications not made by Epic but that happen to use Unreal Engine? The short answer is, like, immediately, no. Like, so they, they terminate Epic's account. Do those games all break? No, they're all fine. But the medium to long-term answer is that if if you would imagine that this developer account is the only way that Epic has to continue development of Unreal Engine on Apple's platforms. Eventually, Apple would release an OS where the Unreal Engine and or the tools stop working or have show-stopping bugs in them. And the game developers would be like, oh, I need to update my game for the new whatever OS. Uh, I'll need the new version of Unreal that works with the new whatever OS. And Epic would say, sorry, we can't actually make a new version of the Unreal Engine for whatever OS because whatever OS is an Apple OS and we literally can't build anything for Apple OS because we don't have access to the dev tools. If you take a very narrow reading, yeah, that's a thing that could happen. But in reality, all right, so you terminated, Apple terminated this developer account. It's kind of a game of whack-a-mole to say, okay, well, what if Epic just makes another developer account? Uh, we notice they use the same legal entity. Okay, well, what if Epic's parent company, was it Tencent or whatever, makes an, has another shell company and they get a developer account and they become the unreal development company that is separate from epic and apple's not mad at them like this could go around forever and ever like bottom line is there's no practical way for apple to stop continued development of unreal engine on apple's platforms right legally speaking technologically speaking they could chase each other forever there's no way to actually stop it assuming both parties are invested in making this happen right so the punishment, given everything that I said, the punishment is actually kind of bad, but it's not the end of the world, and it probably won't affect everybody who built on Unreal Engine, but the probably is where the damage is done. Say it never <laughs> does affect any other person who builds on Unreal Engine. If they think it might affect them, they might be like, do I want to use Unreal Engine? Because they're fighting with Apple, and I'm not quite sure how that's going to turn out. It seems like it'll probably be fine. 
but now I have doubts and maybe I'll use Unity instead, which is a competing 3D engine that works on Apple's platforms and other, you know, PC and game consoles and stuff, right? So this is actually a fairly strong move from Apple. What they're doing, even if it never actually, quote unquote, does anything, A, of course, damage is epic because, you know, Fortnite gets off the App Store and they can't make the money from people using Fortnite on iOS devices and people who use iOS devices spend a lot of money, so that's bad for them. And B, it makes people, it's, you know, in Epic's words and all their lawsuits, damages their reputation. It makes people more wary about using building games on top of Unreal Engine because Unreal Engine is made by the company that's fighting with Apple and maybe something could happen could affect my game. And so I think this is, I mean, the nuclear option, maybe, but it's like, it's a strong move. It's something that has to, you know, Epic has to take this seriously. And again, Epic could have anticipated they'd do this move because, of course, you know, what what does Epic have that Apple can take away from them? Their, their apps on the store and then eventually their developer account, right? So I'm sure they planned for this. But this, I think a lot of people watching this are thinking this is where Epic is going to blink because Apple, in their benevolence, you know, put a press release that said... <laughs> Asterisk. Yeah. You know, yeah, the the app store is designed to be safe and blah blah blah. As much as of how great the app store is, and the, the Apple goes on to say, this is quoting from their little thing they sent to the press. We very much want to keep the company, meaning Epic, as part of the Apple Developer Program and their apps on the store. The problem Epic has created for itself is one that can easily be remedied if they submit an update to their app that reverts it to comply with the guidelines. Yeah, it actually says reverted to comply with the guidelines they agreed to, which apply to all developers. I love that every time Apple references the, develop, the, the guidelines after the congressional hearing, they always say the guidelines, which, by the way, are totally the same for everybody. The guidelines, which apply to everyone equally. The guidelines, which, as we know, are are the same for every single person. The guidelines, which are, have no exceptions, like they always had a modifier. <laughs> to You know, you can say it all you want, Apple. You can re- every time you say guidelines, you can say which apply to everyone equally. It doesn't make it true. You, just, you can't just keep it. Anyway, <laughs> that's setting that aside. So the, Apple's giving them an out. First of all, they gave them this deadline, whatever it was, the 28th. And then they're saying, just fix your game. Just take out the little thing that lets you pay with a credit card and change it back to the way it was, and all will be forgiven. Uh, and so a lot of people are thinking, all right, well, maybe Epic has made its point, and maybe Epic will continue to pursue the lawsuits, but maybe just to come back to a safe position while the lawsuits grind on through the courts. Maybe they just released a version of Fortnite that removes the or they don't even have to release it they can just turn off the server side thing that enables <laughs> enables that feature right uh, no more paying with a credit card and getting 20 percent off it's back to normal you know, or they could just stick it out and say we're willing to take the potential reputational damage we're willing to have 10 cent open a shell company to take on unreal engine development like whatever we're we're in it for the long haul so i don't expect this is the end of the story but uh it's a bold counter move by apple uh and this you know the more more next week i assume I, I think bold is being generous here um this should erase any doubt in anybody's mind whether apple is the ibm in 1984 like yes clearly they are oh my god they are really not doing well in the court of public opinion right now like they this they couldn't possibly have made a worse counter move if they're trying to at all seem like the good guys. And by the way, the reason I think people are saying they look like a bully, just to make this very clear, is that, you know, the fight, such as it stands, like, you could just say, okay, well, you submitted an app that violated the rules and we're angry at you and we pulled the app, right? And that could be, like, you know, 
that's it. Like, well, you did a bad thing with app and we rejected your app, right? That's all they had to do. Right. Well, it's not, not, all I'm saying is that like, that would seem proportional. It's like you submitted a bad app or you rejected your bad app and we're, and you broke our agreement. Like you did a sneaky thing. You broke the agreement. And technically, yes, we have, according to our agreement, we can do all sorts of stuff because of course our agreement tells us we can do whatever the hell we want. In fact, like I said, Apple can terminate your agreement for any reason if they just feel like it, right? There doesn't even have to be a reason. But as Marco was saying, it seems mean to say, well, we're just fighting over this one app. You really got to you got to terminate my whole developer account. Like we don't just develop Fortnite. There are other games by us on the store. Like we do other things. That's why it seems like bullying. Because it's like, okay, well, this happens all the time. And the only time we've seen entire developer account termination is if you're like putting up malicious software, which I think would be a proportional response. You have shown you are not responsible enough to have a developer account. You are putting out software that spies on people tries to steal information yeah but 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 you know talk about treating all developers equally facebook's account should have been terminated many times <laughs> ubers yeah. too like mm-hmm. lots of big companies that do all that their accounts are fine yeah so that, i mean that, that's the, that's the thing like it, it, it's a measure of how big is epic is epic as big as facebook no are they as important to apple's platform as, as facebook no no is they important to netflix probably not right like you can kind of go by the market cap of the company or kind of go by like you can you can size it up epic is a big important company and their parent company is even bigger and even more important but they're not facebook right um so anyway that's why it's that's why we're all saying this seems this seems like bullying because they had a response that would seem more proportional that would fix the problem which is like hey someone's Someone's app is on our store violating the rules, which, which this is another thing, not to go off on a tangent here, but like I'm slightly confused about this. All right, so the app's not on the store, but if you still have it, you can play it. Like that's the kind of compromise we would expect because Apple doesn't want every, all these kids to get mad because they can't play Fortnite, right? But on the other hand, we can't have Epic, you know, breaking the rules, right? But those kids who are still playing Fortnite, they can still use their credit card, whatever, to get 20% off, right? Yeah. Because and that's the thing about like the app, you know, enabling new features after it goes out, which is the thing that all apps do, but it's technically against the guidelines if you read them, you know, right? That Apple actually doesn't have a good way to stop those transactions other than pulling the app entirely and like breaking it for everybody, which they don't want to do because then people would really be angry. Like, hey, my kid can't play Fortnite right now. I'm super angry. I don't want to say kid. Adults play Fortnite too, whatever. Like the users would be very upset if you broke the thing. So Apple has to just kind of grin and bear it and while this grinds on yes new people can't get fortnite but honestly a lot of people already have fortnite on ios devices it is a very popular game and in the meantime they can all be buying v bucks for 20 percent off and that's got to burn apple right so i feel like maybe this you know bullying response is in response to sort of epic having one over on them because they can't or you know it would hurt apple more to literally stop fortnite from working for everybody which that's one more question when they terminate the developer account will fortnite stop working for everybody that's a good question so as far as i know so like there's there's multiple ways of you know apple developer account expiration slash termination so if your account just expires like if you don't renew your developer account your account expires you can't submit new builds to your app and your app disappeared from the store but anybody who has it it can still run and you can still redownload it from the purchases tab same thing if you, if your developer certificate just expires and you still have your account but like your distribution certificate that you built the last copy of the app with if that expires nothing bad happens you just have to make a new one before your next app update um, but otherwise like every, it still stays in the store people can still download it and use it etc that's all fine if apple revokes your certificate from like in like a like a malware kind of way where they like they actually like revoke the thing that says it's okay to run this 
Then you have a Charlie Monroe situation, which we I still want to talk about. <laughs> then you have a situation where the app um, on iOS, I think, just crashes on launch and just refuses to run without any explanation. Um, on the Mac, that's when you get the dialogue that says, this app will damage your computer and you should move it to the trash. Oh, I have so much to say about that. But anyway, that's like <laughs> revocation at, at, the, at Apple's level, not just like, you know, this is no longer valid, but like all previous signed things are now invalid from this app. So I don't know... What happens if Apple terminates your developer account, but not for like a malware kind of reason? I think if you have the app, it continues to run. So I think we've seen this like with various times whenever whenever people have tried to like put emulators in the iOS app store and they're they're up for like a day and then Apple figures it out and takes them down. I think they still run after that for people who already had downloaded them. So if that's the case, I don't think all, all copies of Fortnite out there would be remote killed if their developer account got terminated. Yeah, I mean, this. so what you described are the various options. What we don't know is inside Apple, when, the, when you hit the big terminate account button, like, does that make any of, which of those things does that make happen, if any? Obviously, Apple can do whatever they want, regardless of what that button normally does. They can decide a la carte, we're going to terminate the developer account, and we either are or aren't going to revoke your certificate. But it's on the table as one of their options, and... It's not clear from their threat what they'll choose to do when they do this termination. To give an example of emulators, like I downloaded an NES emulator like on day two of the iPhone or something. Somebody put up an NES emulator, and that worked for years. Now, when somebody put up the NES this is early days, but when whoever put up the NES emulator, that's a violation of the rules. But it's also not malware, but it's also kind of a blatant violation of the rules, and there's also intellectual property things. Uh, it's kind of a judgment call whether Apple to think would Apple have terminated that developer's account. Again, it's not a clear cut case of like you're trying to do something like really terrible, you know, like steal people's personal photos or something like that. Right. Um, but you were breaking the rules. So I would imagine that they didn't terminate that developer's account. They just rejected that application. Right. But who knows? Right. But either way, it, it seems clear that they can choose to let the app live on. But the caveat in the face in, in the, the case of Fortnite if you let the app live on, literally millions of people will continue to be able to bypass an app purchase and get V-Bucks for 20% off, right? giving Epic money. Obviously, it's not sustainable long-term because, you know, you want new customers and stuff like that. But, boy, it really makes me think that I can't imagine Apple tolerating three more years of 100 million people bypassing their in-app purchase just because they refuse to reject the certificate for the game. But on the other hand... Does Apple want to break Fortnite for every single one of its customers? Mm. So they're starting to get in between a rock and a hard place here. Uh, that's the least of the problems. I mean, my big problem with this, so lots of people have pointed out what Epic's real motives here might be. Yeah, they want to make, they want to bring their app store to iOS and take 12% of everybody's you know cut instead of having to pay Apple 30%, whatever. That to me is separate. That's like what Epic wants to do with their money and everyone else's money is not really material to this conversation. The, what's material to this issue is like, first of all, like whether Apple's rules are anti-competitive and, and whether they've overreached or whether it's too big now and has to change or whatever else. Um, and then secondly, from that, their their treatment of Epic in this, whether that's kind of, you know, quote, fair or not, whatever people think. And I think no matter what you think of Epic, because I, I don't know anything about Epic. I don't, I don't care. Um, but what when i see what apple's doing here if you look at it kind of a big picture scenario here 
Apple's in a really questionable place with antitrust and control and monopoly and anti-competitive behavior. I think it's well supported by lots of evidence around the world, the EU, the U.S. Congressional Committee. Their position is worthy of arguing, is worthy of consideration whether regulation needs to be applied. It is, it is not a given that they are 100% in the right with, their, with the status quo. So Epic has filed a lawsuit to challenge this. Whatever you think of Epic and how they're doing this, the idea of filing a lawsuit to challenge Apple's policies and control in this area, I think is a valid argument to have. I think that deserves to be heard and to be argued. What Apple is, do- is doing in response to this is such a bullying move that what they're effectively doing is shutting down the potential to have this be argued in court. They are throwing such a bullying move here that what they're basically saying is, we're not even going to allow this to get anywhere near arguing in a court or in front of a judge or anybody. We're going to destroy your entire business first so that nobody can challenge us. Well, they're not destroying their business, but they are doing the strongest move they have available in the attempt to scare them into presumably uh, not pursuing a lawsuit. There's nothing Apple can actually do to stop them from – I mean, you can sue anybody for anything, right? So, But it, this is an intimidation tactic. Like, here's our threat. Here's our big hammer. We are going to do this thing. Here are the consequences of this thing, and the consequences are far-reaching and damaging to your business. Again, it's not going to destroy Epic. Epic has, you know – this is not the uh, – I don't think uh, Apple's platforms are their primary source of money, although it might be almost 50% of their money getting close to it. Anyway, um, but Ap- Epic, if they're stubborn, can plow ahead with their lawsuit. And by the way, I listed Tencent as their parent company. They're just an investor. They don't have a majority stare, but, uh, share, but Tencent is very big is what I was getting at. Um, so this is so this is it's an intimidation move. It's a bullying move. It's a, it's a counter move in the current thing just to see if they blink. And Apple – is trying, as we said before, it's trying to give them an out. It was also at the end of that other little thing. It says, we hope you're able to cure your bre- cure your breaches of the Apple program license agreement and continue <laughs> to participate in the program. What Apple wants is for them to get back in line. And it's saying, here's the carrot. You get back in line, you can continue having Fortnite. We'll go back to making sure Unreal Engine works real well. You keep your developer account, and we just go back to the way things are, right? And, you know, so, yeah, I think it's, it's not going to immediately destroy Epic's business. It's not that big of a hammer, but it's trying to scare them off. Now, so let's, let's say they do this. They say, okay, okay, Apple, fine. Here you go. We changed Fortnite back. We didn't even have to release a new version because it's all done server-side. We changed it back to the way it was, and now it's just backed in that purchase, and you get your 30%. The lawsuits still exist. This The, the letters that Apple has sent, as far as I'm aware, do, do not say, hey, Epic, and also, by the way, you have to drop your lawsuits, right? So... I don't know if you want to put that into Apple's credit column or whatever, and I don't know if there's been a back channel, but Apple is not making dropping the lawsuits an an explicit condition of this. It's clear that they want them to go away, and it's clear they're trying to intimidate Epic as much as they possibly can, but it doesn't, like, Epic could release the new version and say, okay, we're in compliance now, see you in court. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but, but, you know, Epic, I I think the reason why they didn't just file a lawsuit, you know, without changing their app. They didn't just file a lawsuit saying you should change your policies and then keep their app compliant. Instead, they intentionally provoked the rule so that their app would be kicked out of the store so that they could be damaged, so they could have standing to sue. 
I'm not a lawyer, so forgive, you know, I, I'm going to try to not get too far into the legal side of this because I don't know it. But I think their case is probably easier to make if they are more damaged. Like, if they can show that Apple had so much power that they got, you know, that they lost X millions of dollars a day or, you know, whatever um, with this one thing, that actually might help their case or it might help illustrate that Apple has too much power. Now, when I look at this move by Apple, this this developer account threat, my first thought was, oh, no, Apple lost their cool. If you're fighting with somebody and they lose their cool, usually it's good for you. Because if they lose their cool, they will start making moves that are maybe hastily thought out, that are maybe, you know, going to hurt them or can be used against them later. And so in this case, it looks like Apple lost their cool with this and made a threat that was really big and really over the top, I think. And I don't think it was a good idea for Apple to have made this threat because not only does it make them look even more like jerks, and honestly, I think it kind of makes them look desperate, but it also shows to the world, to all the world's governments, to all the world's consumer protection agencies, to all the world's congresses and legislators, and to the courts, quite how much power Apple has. And it's too much. And that's the whole thing right now with the legislation possibly or regulation around them. They do have too much power. They should be regulated. They should have an injunction granted against this action while this lawsuit's pending. They have too much power and they are abusing it for anti-competitive purposes. And so for them to have made this extra move, you know, taking it off the App Store, as you said earlier, like that's all they had to do. And then, you know, let the lawsuit proceed and let that work out over time. To also then threaten this, I think, makes the case better for everyone who's fighting against them to say, no, look, they need to be regulated. They are acting as an abusive monopoly now. They are trying to actively shut down not only competition, but legal challenges against them in ways that they probably shouldn't be able to. So I think this actually hurts Apple's case and makes it even more likely that they will be more heavily regulated down the road. That's why I think this is a bad move, and they, I think they will come to regret this. Yeah, it, it was clear from day one that Epic doing this stuff, like, you know, they knew they were going to get kicked out. They weren't surprised about what happened. And getting kicked out was part of their plan because, like you said, like it's not, it's not like legally speaking you need to do that because you can say – here's how we would experience harm, but you have a stronger case. You can say, here's how we did experience harm. It's not a hypothetical anymore. It's, it's a literal thing. Because if you argue in court, if we did this, then Apple would do that. And Apple could say, how do you know we would do that? We do weird things all the time. You have no idea what we would do. It's like, well, <laughs> here's what you actually did. Um, the downside for Epic, especially with what I, you know, if we're right about this thing still being in the store with a 20% option is, is now Apple can show damages too. Because they can say, for the last year that this this has been, uh, you know, in, in court, uh, Epic has been on the store not paying us our 30%, which they should be as part of the agreement. So we've continued to allow users to download their app, and here's how much money we lost from in V-Bucks, right? You know, so Apple has <laughs> can cite damages as well. Not Again, not just a hypothetical where Apple could say, well, if we let people do that, they wouldn't give us a 30%. And could say, actually, they didn't let us give our 30%, and we were nice and didn't kick it off the store because we didn't want to anger our users, but here's how many millions of dollars we lost, right? So it's a double-edged sword there. Um, but for sure, having all of these bad things happen in all cases, like they did with Google, too. They went on Google. They got kicked out of the store. They sued Google. They're going to cite the fact they were kicked out of the store. Like, it's 
you know, it, it, it's a clear strategy. It just, it's a little bit tricky. Uh, something people have discussed uh, on and off about this. Uh, Epic is complaining about all the stuff with the App Store. They take too big a cut. They have too much control, yada, yada. Lots of people say, well, Epic and Unreal and all that stuff, they participate in the game console world as well. And the game console world is essentially exactly like the App Store. You can't release something for the Xbox or the PlayStation without going through Sony. Sony decides what goes on the platform. Sony's rules about qualifying your game for the PlayStation are way more draconian than Apple's. Like, you know, it's not... There's a reason the App Store has, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of, of apps, and the PlayStation does not have millions of games, right? Sony tightly controls their 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 store. You know, in, back in the day, it wasn't an App Store. It was like literal plastic discs. But these days, there's a digital version of all these games, and you can also buy plastic discs, and that's a whole other discussion for another time. But anyway... Game consoles are, you know, are very much like this. And the game console vendors, the platforms, take a big cut. According to Apple's research in that paper they put out, the cut is actually similar to the App Store, 30%-ish, depending on, you know, all sorts of deals or whatever. Um, so why isn't Epic suing Microsoft? Why aren't they suing Sony? Like, you, you know, you're, why aren't you suing them? They're doing exactly the same thing to you, right? They take a percent, the same big chunk out of your thing. They don't let you do all the stuff you want to do. They don't let Epic have its own, you know, game store inside PlayStation. Like, every single thing they're saying about Apple is the same situation. Why aren't you suing them, right? And I think before we get to antitrust, which I think, uh, you know, Marco's already weighed in on, and I've mostly not been weighing in on yet because I think there's so much to talk about before even considering antitrust, you know, getting back to my argument from last week, uh, the reason that Epic is not suing Sony and Microsoft, it's it's the same it's the same root problem that Apple has, right? The platform owners, Apple, Sony, Microsoft, their job is to try to create that win-win-win situation where developers, users, and the platform owner all succeed together, right? And you may look at it and say, well, why is Epic mad at Apple and not mad at Sony? That's the job of the platform owner to make sure that people aren't so mad <laughs> that they sue them, right? And so the simple explanation is that despite Epic having butted heads heads with console makers at various times, in fact, having very similar sort of headbutting arguments about uh, internal purchases and selling inside and outside the store, like these things have played out in the console world. In fact, sometimes specifically with Epic, um, many times the game console platforms have better managed their relationship. This little triangle relationship between users, developers, and the platform, they've managed it better enough, better enough. Not like their developers aren't mad at them sometimes, not like users aren't mad at them sometimes, but they've managed it better enough that they're not in the situation, right? It's not that the rules are different. It's that the people who are the, the platform owners have better than Apple been able to say, it's our job to make sure that people don't get so pissed that they sue us, Right. And, and that sort of relationship, like, I, if you wanted to pin it down to, like, well, what have they done that's better, right? Game console makers understand gaming and the gaming market better than Apple does in many ways. And one of those ways is that they understand it's a lot, it's an entertainment industry, right? And it works more like, you know, making movies and TV shows where those platforms actively cultivate talent and participate in this win-win scenario where they will help pay for the development of a flagship game for a timed exclusivity, right? They will recruit talent. They will invest in studios that make games. They will help you market your game. They will sell branded versions of your console that are like, you know, Gears of War branded, right? All this relationship between Sony and the developers is why developers hate Sony less than Apple or why Epic does anyway, right? 
because Sony is there saying, here's a bucket of cash we're going to dump over your head. You know, or Microsoft says, <laughs> you know, develop Gears of War. Here's millions of dollars to develop it. Keep it on our platform only. We'll make a special Xbox that's Gears of War branded and we'll sell it in the store with Gears of War. And Epic is like, yes, we like you. <laughs> this is good. And Apple's like, put your app in our store, give us 30% and $99 a year. <laughs> like it's it's a different it's not that type of relationship like consoles have first party games consoles have timed platform exclusives mostly you know that's i'm not saying that apple has to do that and i'm not saying just about games or whatever all i'm saying is that the game console makers have better managed their relationships and that's that's what apple is doing wrong they're not they're not making sure everybody is happy many things spin out of that once once the war starts once the shooting starts right it just gets worse and worse. And like Marco said, losing your cool is not good. I, f- I wish I could remember this specific example. There's actually a specific example of Epic intentionally going against the rules and butting heads with one of these uh, console makers. And they settled it more quietly and more amicably than Apple has done so far. I mean, this isn't over yet, right? But, but I'm saying like, you're always going to have flare ups and the big players like Epic who are cranky are always going to butt heads with you. You've got to manage that, right? You know, at the end of my... Uh, Art of the possible thing. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Like, do you want to just be like, well, we're, we're just sticking to our principles and then get sued and have this giant disaster? Or are you going to say, like, even though I think I'm right, let's get back to the part where we all win. Let's get back to the part where <laughs> we at least find an acceptable compromise because we get an advantage from you being on our platform and you get an advantage from being on our platform and our customers want your game. So let's facilitate. You got to get back to that win. And that's essentially, you know, it's not as if that what Apple is doing is. Well, there's a separate argument to be like, is Apple, is it more important or worse for Apple to be doing it versus game consoles or whatever? And again, I'll say that for later, but just bottom line, uh, the game console makers have, have historically done a better job of managing their relationships. And I feel like Apple needs to go to a corporate relationship counselor. (laughs) It was just Epic is on the couch. How do you feel when Epic, when Apple tells you they're going to terminate your house? Epic's like, I feel bad. (laughs) I feel like Apple doesn't appreciate me. <laughs> Apple, tell Epic how you appreciate it. I don't know. This could be a whole skit. I can't do it on the fly. Yeah, and, and this is the kind of thing that Apple is historically not good at. Like, the, like Apple dealing with other companies in general, it's not very good at, uh, especially when the negotiations are actually negotiations and compromises on both sides as opposed to Apple just being able to dictate things. <laughs> exactly that's the way apple likes it they're real happy with those relationships yeah right when it comes to a- apple having to work with companies where they don't have all the power uh in in the discussion they're historically quite bad at that actually and, and by the way that that is uh, that scenario happens all the time in the app store when it's apple versus an individual developer apple tends to find a way to deftly handle those conflicts because they have all the power and so they're not usually super jerky about it at least not intentionally sometimes again charlie monroe accidentally jerky right but in general, in these scenarios where it's single lone developer versus giant Apple, Apple finds a way to get past them. We've talked about a million of those uh, App Store things over the years. Like, oh, some developer had a thing with Apple. But because Apple has literally 100% of the power in every possible way, they get resolved and we move on because Apple essentially just runs you over, right? You, you, you comply or you go away, but either way, it's solved. But when it's not one dinky little developer and instead a, another billion-dollar corporation, Apple doesn't know how to use its words and talk about its feelings and we end up here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's tough because 
on the surface, I, on the surface, I can see why Apple is acting the way it is. I completely disagree with their course of action, but I can I, I can understand it at at a surface level. You know, Epic did something that is expressly forbidden. You know, they they not only did they do this like run around where they downloaded this update directly into the app, which I know for games that's sort of kind of allowed, but it seems like the way they did it probably wasn't allowed. But beyond that, they had this third party, you know, payment system that is expressly not allowed. And it seems like there should be a consequence for that. I mean, that seems pretty straightforward. And then they escalated by suing Apple. Well, you know what? Fuck you right back. <laughs> you know, now you're not allowed in the store anymore. It, again, like on the surface, this I can understand how these this seems like a reasonable series of actions. And I just I, I feel like nobody at Apple has taken a step back and said, you know, as as we said last time, are, are we the baddies? Um, it, nobody has said, is this really appropriate? Because we are not the scrappy upstarts anymore. And I'm not the first person to say that in the last couple of weeks. And I won't be the last. But I, so much of Apple appears from the outside to be thinking of themselves as the beleaguered upstart. And they're not. They are IBM now. And if you want to enjoy the spoils of being IBM, then you need to act like a grown-up. And Apple is not acting like a grown-up right now. And it's just, it's crummy. And, you know, the other thing about it is, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, like so much of this is intertwined with so many ongoing kerfuffles that Apple is involved with, if if not directly started. And, you know, why, why did Epic decide to do this end around and try to take money directly? You know, did they do that because they want a direct relationship with the customer? Well, maybe, but I don't think that's it. Did they do that because they wanted to make it easier on the customer? Well, certainly not, because in-app purchase is unequivocally easier on the consumer it may not be easier on the developer but it's easier on the consumer it's not easy on the consumer's pocketbook well fair fair that's a good point but it's it's easier I saying that epic was saying that like more than half of the customers uh pick the cheaper option and i'm like really it was only slightly more than half i thought 100 percent of the customers <laughs> but maybe they were suspicious because they're like wait a second this must be some kind of scam but yeah customers want it to be cheaper yeah absolutely and i don't so why did the Epic do it? Well, I mean, obviously they wanted money. They wanted more money. But I think that in a large, to, a, to a large degree, Epic, as many other people have said, this 30% is just too darn much. The rent is too dang high. And 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 I don't think that's un- an unreasonable perspective. And, and, and then like the App Store, like this is another different topic. Like is the App Store and App Review reasonable today? Well, actually, b- before you get to that, the 30%, 30% being too darn high, again, uh, consoles also charge 30%. It, it's, you have to add a slightly qualifier. It's too high for what Epic feels like it's getting for its money. That's, you know, that's the difference. Why aren't they mad at Microsoft? They're paying Microsoft 30%. Why, what, how are they happy with that? It's because I guess they feel like they're getting value for their money. Again, maybe they're going to do a branded console. Maybe they're going to help them with marketing. Maybe they're going to advertise their game and their marketing materials. Maybe they have a close relationship about exclusive future games. Like that's corporate relationship management, right? That's that's what the console makers are doing better than Apple. So when we say 30% is too high and someone says, uh-uh, Microsoft charges 30%, how is that different? Microsoft is managing the relationship better. There's It's more than just that 30% number. Clearly, Epic thinks for this 30%, A, we're not getting enough value and B, there's extra pains in our ass. Like, you know, dealing with Apple is worse than dealing with Microsoft, even though it is, 
you know, harder to get something onto the consoles than it is into the app store. As far as Epic's concerned, at the level that it plays, it has less of a problem. Not no problem, because again, I think that Epic is super mad at the console makers too. But so far, not as mad as they are at Apple. And so, yeah, you just like that. If you are a platform and you're dealing with an Epic and Epic is important to you and they have Fortnite and it's a popular game, manage that relationship better. So 30% is too high for the value that you think you're getting. Like that's the qualifier on everything in any sort of relationship. Are we all okay enough with the terms not to literally go to war? And so far the answer with Apple is no, we're not okay. And the other, <laughs> the other console makers like for now we're okay enough. Yeah. And, and the other thing that got me thinking is I was talking to a friend of mine and uh, mostly about uh, the idea of like side loading. So, you know, it, should it be possible for an iPhone to install an app that somebody downloads over the internet. So yes, you can sideload now with like a developer certificate. And if you sort of kind of know what you're doing, um, you can even sideload using, what is it? Alt store or something like that. Um, that again is fiddly and complicated, but you can do it. Uh, but, but should sideloading be allowed? And at first, my initial reaction was hell yeah. Cause th- this is no longer just a phone. This is your primary computing device. Even for some people like myself, like I spend more time in front of a computer than most people, like a traditional computer. But nevertheless, in so many ways, I would say my iPhone is my primary computer. And this this is getting into the whole like is the is the iPhone a console, which is which has floated around many of our friends' podcasts, but particularly on Dithering recently. And whether or not you consider the iPhone a console, I do think that the iPhone is for many people their primary computing device. And if it's their primary computing device, shouldn't they be able to put whatever software they want on it? And that that's a very slippery slope. And at first I would say yes, and then I thought about it and I was like, well, I don't think, I don't know, I don't think so actually. So then that brings up this, this topic of curation, which is what my friend brought up. Like the, the app store is curated. Now you can take curated to mean only the best. You can take curated to mean not actively hostile. You can take curated to mean, well, it may be garbage, but at least it doesn't you steal your data and crash. You know, maybe it's, it, maybe it's not actively hostile in that it doesn't steal your data, but it also doesn't crash. And there's so many ways to, 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 to take curated. And I think that that's okay. And I think that most Apple customers want a more curated experience, however you define curated. But we are how many years in the iPhone? 13 or something like that? It was 2007, wasn't it? Yep. Okay, so we're 13 years into the iPhone. At this juncture, I feel like it is reasonable to let consumers make more choices for themselves. I don't know that we really need Big Brother Apple to be running interference for us quite as much as they have been. Now, I wouldn't necessarily take that all the way to allowing sideloading, but for example, the what was it, the Xbox thing from last week? I don't. Even, I already forgot the name of it. Xbox Live or something like that. Xcloud. The, the thank you, Xcloud. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Xcloud and Stadia. That's not the actual name. That was the code name. I still don't know the real name. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, well, whatever. You know, these streaming gaming services. Or even like an emulator, like take a take a Nintendo emulator. Like uh, one of the things that Apple said is, whoa, 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 hold on, we can't we can't verify that all these games are not trash. So no, you can't have that in the App Store. Uh, uh-uh. uh, why? Like, let the consumer decide. Well, 
because they couldn't verify that like, this game is going to use an app purchase. That's that's the real answer. Well, that's, yeah, you're right. You're <laughs> we can't review right. all these games to comply with this extremely anti-competitive problematic rule that we have. <laughs> right. No, uh, you're right. And so at this point, 13 years on, I mean, the iPhone is almost old enough to get a learner's permit in most American states. 13 years on, I think that customers understand what the iPhone is about and the iPad too. I'm picking on the iPhone, but you know what iOS is about. And, and I feel like we should be allowed a little more choice. And I don't think that we're the scared little children in the corner wondering how to use this new computing platform. Uh, Again, I don't think sideloading is the answer, but I feel like there should be a a relaxation of what is allowed on the app store. And that doesn't necessarily explicitly relate to Epic, but I think that that's one of these boiling points that I'm seeing lately is that people are saying we want more choice and Apple's saying mm, no. And that's crummy and I don't like it. Yeah, because like I think the role of you know keeping users safe, which is very important. Yes, I like that a lot. And and I actually like I I I've said this last week too. Like I don't I actually don't want side loading or alternative app stores like that's not what i would hope for for as an outcome here um i'm totally fine having the app store continue to be the only way to get apps and as a as a slightly further step from that i would be okay with side loading long before i'd be okay with alternative app stores um, because the OS has technical limitations. I talked about this on Under the Radar this week. Um, the OS has you know, technical limitations where an app currently cannot install another app. Uh, and if that were still allowed, if, if apps could be installed through you know, enterprise distribution, basically, through, through you know, that kind of like managed side-loading procedure, um, but they couldn't themselves then install other apps, so, that, so you could have... You know, apps that were distributed you know, on websites, but you couldn't have you know good like alternative app stores unless they would just be like giant web views or something. But like, I'd be fine with that too. But ultimately, what I actually don't really think either side loading or alternative app stores are incredibly necessary or compelling on iOS. However, uh, you know, the app store I think overstates its value. You know, Apple overstates the app store's value in terms of curation and user safety. Uh, there's lots of apps in the App Store, I would say the majority of apps in the App Store, that are total garbage. There's lots of apps in the App Store that steal your personal information in ways that you don't necessarily think or expect or are fully disclosed on, many of them by Facebook. Uh, there, There's lots of apps in the App Store that do crash or that don't work as expected or that don't work as advertised or that don't provide all the fu- advertised functionality. Because app review is neither perfect nor thorough nor consistent. The App Store is not actually providing a huge degree of safety, consumer protection, stuff like that. Most of the safety and consumer protection come from the operating system. They come from the the technological limitations that it isn't that apps, you know, aren't you know, reading each other's files and, and installing persistent demons behind the scenes that you can't uninstall. It, they aren't avoiding that because App Store policy wouldn't let them. They don't do that because they can't on iOS, because the OS blocks that kind of behavior. Like, it is literally impossible to do those kind of things on iOS unless you found some kind of security exploit, right? So, but, so I know the point you're getting at, and it's mostly true, but, like, the, the thing is, like, practically speaking, if you were able to very easily get people to download applications that Apple never looked at, um, 
those that the way it would be damaging is because those are the applications that would use private APIs to find the exploit to do the thing, right? You know what I mean? Like it's not to say that you can't get can't get something with an exploit through the app store because if you find a really good exploit, you might not have to use private APIs. You might not have to do anything that they can detect, right? But once you have that side channel, it's way easier once you find an exploit to say now we're home free, right? So the OS is supposed to stop all of those things. But if you find an exploit, and especially I feel like unfettered access to private APIs and to be able to poke around like that, that's how you find a hole in the sandbox more easily. In fact, many of the jailbreaks require some kind of like in like that where you can get arbitrary code execution to, so you can get to a private API. So it may, all I'm saying is it makes it more challenging for the technical limitations you just described to to hold, right? Because they're obviously they're not foolproof, right? And app review is even app review, like I said, is not foolproof, but app review is one more stage where Apple can say, okay, are they trying to bypass our technical limitations? Let's use our tools to detect it. Without that extra step, you're just relying on the technical barriers and they're never perfect. Like exploits are found all the time, right? So it's it is not in a completely, you know, black and white situation, but certainly most of the benefit that we like like you were saying most of the benefit that we enjoy is from the technical barriers not from the quote-unquote curation sure i mean but many of those same tools are running through the notarization service so like when you submit your binary for notarization it's scanning it for a lot of those same kinds of things i mean but if you had a side channel you wouldn't have to notarize it either right like the, the whole point of a side channel is i can i can give somehow distribute this app to users and apple never sees any part of it i won't notarize it you know maybe it'll use developer id no i don't i don't think that's necessarily a given i mean they could have it they could have it work the same way that that you know enterprise distribution works and well i don't know enterprise distribution i guess are those binaries ever going through apple servers well anyway it could Mm. be like on the mac where on the mac like now you know with modern os's like you you really have to jump through hoops to run something that's not uh developer id signed and i think soon or already notarized and so they could do the same thing on ios where like they would have to be notarized binaries and everything so like some of that attack area could be reduced I, i mean there are ways to get around that like you can you know construct the selector from strings like there's all sorts of like you know ways that you can get around their their static analysis yeah. tools and the thing is companies like epic like a re- i think the reason epic wants to like to relax the rules is like if you gave if you just relax the rules a little bit epic would find a way to essentially bootstrap their entire store right all they need is a tiny little corner like it's like hey go to our website and click this link and it will use some weird exploit to get their foot in the door to bootstrap the process which will pull down our, you know like you can it doesn't take much this is the thing with like security flaws. Once you can get that little thin end of the wedge in, you and you see it from like the easy the easy jailbreak stores and the ways they try to make enterprise certs like less annoying. If you can get that in there, and like it's it's worthwhile for a company the size of Epic to play that whack a mole game with Apple. Like we'll use this weird exploit to get the thin end of the wedge in to be able to bootstrap our store install process, and then once we get that, we're off to the races, and then we'll. Will you know? But will we won't require anything to be notarized, or maybe we'll notarize it behind the scenes and make a nice UI for it. Like this, it's worthwhile to them, monetarily speaking, to go through heroic measures to make it as you know as less annoying as they possibly can than than all the things that Apple throws up, right? So it's still like, and I don't think Apple wants to engage in that war, right? You know, it, 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 it's more cut and dry when it's like there's the App Store and nothing, right? you know. So I'm, it's. That's why every time we talk about sideloading, it becomes like, ah, mm, eh. like from both <laughs> perspectives, it's can't, it seems like it can't be as good from the user's perspective. And then from Apple's perspective, if they open that door even a little bit, it's, you know, it's it's a it's a new front, you're, you're, a new war you're waging on a new front. Now, all of a sudden we allowed this, but now we have to find everybody who can 
find the little path that we've allowed and use that to bootstrap their entire universe that is filled with like Bitcoin mining or God knows what. <laughs> right. Well, and that's again, like this is why like I'm not pushing for side loading or alternative app stores really. I don't think the world would end if we had that, but I, that's not my ideal outcome. My ideal outcome is the app store policies get slightly relaxed in the, in the, the most problematic areas. I really would not want Apple to totally lose control of distribution and software quality on iOS. They've already lost a lot of it just by by size. I mean, like like the value of the App Store from any kind of like store perspective, like you were mentioning earlier about like game consoles, and you th- you have things like cooperative marketing efforts between the platform vendor and the apps and everything, or the games and everything. Um, and and here, you know, you don't the App Store does not do much for any apps marketing anymore. There are way too many apps. Not a lot of people are just casually browsing the App Store as a thing that that you do every day. Like you know, like when the phone was new, you would just kind of casually browse the App Store because you had no apps. And you, it, would, it was like a fun thing to just browse around. Hey, let's install whatever's here. This looks nice. I'm going on a plane. Let me go to the games page and see what games are new and install some games. These days, it's a much more mature system with a billion apps in the store. They the the marketing value is nearly nothing. Um, even the apps that get featured they have less traffic going to them at, than they used to uh, because it's just, again, like people aren't doing that in the same way that they used to anymore. Um, and, and the app store design doesn't help either. It's very low information density. You have very few apps per page, et cetera. So all these things combined to be like, this is providing very little marketing benefit. The hosting benefit is something that exists, but it's something that you could, ho- you could host yourself for, you know, pennies or dollars per month. Like it's not significant, that they're offering that what the app store mainly is offering here is that app review process and the payment integration for like the upfront purchasing and everything and, and the ease of the payment integration. That's what they're offering. And so anybody who says 30% is not worth it for that. I agree with, uh, it's, it's not worth it. Um, and the, and for Apple to be able to, for Apple to be in a position where they can dictate, we are going to take 30% of all your money that goes through this platform was a totally reasonable ish. I mean, it was never incredibly great, but a reasonable ish position to take when they were small. And this, you know, the argument I made last week is like what case was saying earlier, this is now a major computing platform. This is a huge part of lots of people's lives in really critical ways. Like imagine I imagine a couple of scenarios here to, to, to help make this point a little bit better. A, imagine if Windows PCs and Macs were this way from the start. Imagine if all PC and Mac software for the entire history of those platforms, Microsoft and Apple respectively, were controlling everything that could possibly ever get written on them and forcing everyone to, to put 30% of all commerce through them. Imagine if Google Chrome and Apple Safari and uh, and every browser. Imagine if web browsers required that all web commerce had to pay them that happened through their browser or they would make their sites unbrowsable in their browser. Imagine, now, you might say, oh, well, you know, Apple built this whole system on mobile. Okay, that's interesting. Apple's not the only company that has contributed massive critical infrastructure on mobile. I would argue that if Apple deserves 30% of all transactions that happen on phones, so does your carrier. What if AT&T all of a sudden decided, you know what, 
we're going to demand 30% of all transactions that happen through our network. Or you have to remove your phone for an network. Like, ISPs, broadband, cellular, component makers, network providers. Like, what if Cisco decides, you know what? All this traffic that's routing through our switches, we built this infrastructure. We deserve 30% of all money that goes through it. It's it's a ludicrous argument. And you can start to see how if any company really did this in a, if for a, a large portion of the economy – it would crush that economy, and it would severely restrict it. It would cause lots of problems, and everybody would probably be better off. The entire economy would probably be better off if those gatekeepers did not do that after things get to a certain scale. And you look at game consoles, and that game consoles are fundamentally different. They just are. They're not general-purpose computers. They serve a significant part of an economy, but not like a broad part. They serve a narrow part in certain specialized ways, and that's it. General purpose computers, PCs, Macs, and yes, mobile phones, are a much more broad tool, much more essential to everyday life. In the same way that like, you know, certain services like, you know, your your water and electric supply are regulated as essential services. That's how these computing devices are. They are essential. And it makes no more sense that Apple deserves 30% of everything that goes through their platform and can dictate everybody that goes on and off of it than if AT&T or Comcast or Cisco or like so many other, of these other things, if they would do the same thing. Like it, it, no one here deserves to lock up an entire market in a way that has this much impact on the economy and has you know massive anti-competitive uh, forces at play as well. Like we're beyond the, that level of like companies can do whatever they want because it's their company. Like again, once things get to a certain size, they go beyond that. It is the monopolist's style and role and duty to always say, we built this. We put all this money into it. We deserve to retain our control. They always say that like standard oil. I'm sure said that like, <laughs> like, you know, the railroads back in the day, I'm sure they said that too. That is their job to, to, play that card and to try to drum up public opinion to and the court's opinion to say like we built this and we deserve to run it however we want uh, but that's not how society works like capitalism in its purest sense doesn't work you need you need like uh, you know exceptions and regulations that are part of the system to keep it healthy and, and to keep the economy from being locked up and having these giant monopolies form and kind of crush everything under them and this is that size now this is that kind of thing and in the same way that AT&T shouldn't be able to say we are now going to just take 30% of all your money that goes through our network, Apple is now too big for that. And their platform needs to be regulated to preserve this entire section of our economy, of our society, of everyday consumer and business usage of their platforms. They need regulation. They are too big to have the control that they have and the way they exercise their power, they're they, they just, it's too big and too important for that now. And the needs of society are now above that. I've still been studiously avoiding the antitrust stuff, and I don't want to delve into it at this late stage in this episode. But I will I will leave it in the, the topic list because I'll, I'll give my take on uh, antitrust stuff maybe next episode. But I do want to save myself from another flurry of emails, assuming there's no uh, bugs outside my window. Uh, first, the the, X, the name of the xCloud thing, Project xCloud, is that was their streaming gaming thing. It's just going to be part of Xbox Game Pass, which is their uh, you know subscription gaming service. It'll be part of Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. Um, second item, uh, I mentioned Microsoft and you know a Gears of War branded Xbox and all that other stuff. Um, 
Microsoft actually bought Gears of War a couple of years back, bought like bought the entire franchise, right? That I imagine is another example of corporate relationship management. Um, it's not like Microsoft stole it from Epic. They bought it with lots and lots of money, right? That's, a, you know, we'll make a game. It'll be exclusive for your platform. Um, and then, oh, well, actually, we'd like to make a new franchise. And Microsoft's like, well, we kind of like Unreal. Well, let's come to agreement. Here's a giant bucket of money. Can we have, or no, not Unreal. Can we have Gears of War? Here you go. Here's Gears of War, right? That's better corporate relationship management and talent retention than Apple is doing. Um, and somebody in the chat room earlier said that, uh, can't believe he's listening to uh, Apple fans arguing against the walled garden. Why don't you just use Android if that's your your argument? I don't think any of us are arguing against the walled garden. We're just saying we'd like the garden to be better tended, right? Or we'd like the rules of the garden to be different. In fact, you know, we just got done talking about side loading. We're not arguing against the walled garden. It's not a walled garden anymore. It's more of like a walled prison. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's not fun to be in here. We're not like frolicking through the flowers and sitting on a bench and appreciating nature. Some people are angry. Right. It doesn't mean the concept of a walled garden or a curated space is bad. Again, game consoles. Game consoles are the the most walled garden. They have very extremely closed walls, very tight control. And I like game consoles for those reasons, because the platform owners who succeed learn how to cultivate with both money and encouragement and marketing and everything you every tool they can possibly imagine, talent that makes creative things. That's part of we talked about this with Apple Arcade. Apple kind of sort of got a tiny bit of a clue of like hmm maybe we should give people money to make good games for our platform but the scale they're doing with apple arcade is nothing compared to the scale the console makers do it like console makers how much money does sony pay to naughty dog to put the last of us exclusively on that platform like that that bucket of money could pay for all of apple arcade 75 times over now apple <laughs> might say they're being savvy and saying we're not putting all our, our money into these big buckets but there's a reason when everyone says AAA games, most people don't think of phones or iPads, even though there are some really great games for phones and iPads. Uh, you know, th- I, I still think Apple doesn't quite understand. But anyway, getting back to walled gardens, like I, I personally love walled gardens that are beautiful gardens. They have walls, but the beauty of the garden is worth it enough for me to pay the admission to get the console to sit down and play the set of games that Sony has decided are allowed to be on their platform. And given the amount of time I have, I appreciate the fact that of all the games on the platform, I could actually scroll through the list of all of them. And there's a small enough number and the best ones are really, really good. That's why I keep buying Sony consoles, right? So like I said, I don't want to get into my personal take on the antitrust stuff now because we have so much Ask ATP that I think I want to get to, but I wanted to address those small items just so we get slightly less feedback. And by the way, if you already tweeted at me before you got to this point in the show, that happens. What can you do? We are sponsored this week by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com slash ATP. Enter offer code ATP at checkout to get 10% off. Make your next move with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Squarespace makes it incredibly easy to make a great website for whatever your project or portfolio or new business or whatever it might be would need. Squarespace sites look incredibly good. They look professionally designed regardless of your skill level as the creator. There is no coding required. You don't have to know HTML or CSS or JavaScript or anything like that because everything is managed through intuitive 
easy to use tools. Everything is visual. You can drag and drop stuff. You can live preview everything. You can pick from all their wonderful themes they have available from professional designers. They all are mobile friendly. And then you can also adapt the theme to your own branding. You can put your own colors, your own fonts. You can rearrange things. You can even draw your own logo all in Squarespace. It's just wonderful to be a Squarespace customer because you get so much functionality built in with all their plans. You can do things like have a storefront built in. You could do podcast hosting on Squarespace. You can do all sorts of rich functionality like galleries and calendars and blogs and all sorts of great stuff on Squarespace. And then they support it. You don't have to worry about things like software upgrades or security patches or dealing with like a big influx if you get a link from somewhere popular. You don't have to worry about keeping the servers up, like none of that stuff. It's just wonderful being a Squarespace customer. You can see for yourself with a free trial site at squarespace.com slash ATP. When you decide to sign up after that trial, make sure to head back there to squarespace.com slash ATP and use the offer code ATP at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com slash ATP, code ATP for 10% off your first purchase. Thank you so much to Squarespace for sponsoring our show. Make your next move with Squarespace. All right, let's do some Ask ATP. And I'd like to uh, take a very, very brief detour and I would like to thank uh, Brendan. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I'd like to thank Brendan uh, Riel, who put together AskATP.fm, which is a uh, a search engine for Ask ATP questions and answers. And this, I think, was born from me saying, why is it that we're asked how to move things between computers 85 times a year? And so Brendan took it upon himself to put this together, and it is stupendous. So thank you, Brendan, for doing that. That is extremely cool, and I'm sure it took forever. Moving on, uh, Nathaniel Cohen writes, I have a three external monitor and laptop screen setup. Two of those monitors are identical with the same make and model. The OS, therefore, seems unable to reliably identify them. Their identities frequently become swapped, and I usually have a once-per-day fun time with the Mac OS monitor arrangement slash resolution configurator. This functionality for configuring monitors as exposed by the OS is horrendous. The arrangement tab does not identify any of the monitors. Even when you click and drag to adjust their position, you have no idea which monitor you are affecting. Similarly, the UI for display configuration is needless, needlessly, needlessly spread out across N windows if you have N monitors, and it's impossible to tell if two monitors have the same make and model, which window corresponds to which monitor. Uh, I guess there was a question here. Maybe? My question is more of a comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I put this in there. I mean, the question is probably like, don't you think this is bad? Um, so a few uh, thoughts. This is the reason I put thoughts. The yes. reason I put this in there. So first, first of all. Um, I it's been so long since I used multiple monitors that I actually had to like a uh, you know I, I connect to my external monitor my external monitor was surrogate which is my uh, sidecar iPad to confirm this um, and I don't I don't I'm too old to remember how it used to be but I, I double checked and of course now I forgot again but anyway Mac OS has pretty much always had a way to do exactly one of the things he's asking for which is what what monitor is this in the arrange panel where it shows you little little squares or rectangles each one represents your monitor if you have one big monitor and one small monitor it's easy to tell which is which the big one is the big rectangle is the big monitor and the small rectangle is the small monitor but what if you have monitors that are exactly the same size uh, how do you tell which is which if you just click and hold on the little rectangle it will put a red border around the monitor that you are clicking and holding on like you'll click and hold in the little preference pane on like a little tiny representation of your monitor but then that actual monitor will get a giant red outline around it like in real life if you look at so anyway that feature does exist it's not obvious that it's there but you can identify the monitors in that way right and so then you can tell which one you're rearranging 
the other part of this, though, has a tie into one of my Switch Glass War stories, which I'm not going to have time to go into entirely here, but I will give the short version of it, which is uh, when you have monitors connected to your computer, like, and oh, actually, before I get to that, the thing about the windows being spread out, this is the thing that, that Mac OS does and has always done, I think, for adjusting monitors. If you try to adjust the settings on the monitor, you know, you have system preferences open and you got the monitor preference pane. Um, and when you pull up the monitor's preference pane, yeah, it's whatever your main window is that has system preferences on it will show the monitor's thing. But then on every other monitor, you'll also see a little miniature monitor's preference pane that has the settings that apply to that monitor. So if you want to change the resolution of a particular monitor, you bring your mouse cursor to that monitor where there is a window mm-hmm. sitting there that says pick one of these resolutions, pick this color depth, whatever, pick this rotation thing, and the window in that monitor applies to that monitor, right? That's a system that they use for a long time. It's a little bit easier than having to do like, okay, well, first I click the little representation of my monitor, and then now I know all my future changes apply to that monitor. Like, it's better when they, I think, it's better when every single monitor has dead center on it a window and that window controls the monitor that it's on in fact i like that feature so much that when i made switch glass one of the features i wanted to have is that the little switchy palette thingy you get one of those on each monitor and if you want to adjust the settings i made one preference window or i tried to do this i muddled it a little bit anyway i made a preference window and when you open preferences you get one preference window on every single monitor and if you want to adjust the settings of the little palette on that monitor you use the preference window that's on that monitor Right. So I use the same approach, which most people maybe aren't familiar with or that seems weird. But to me, it seems very a fairly clean way to do it. I modeled it because I put global settings at the bottom and then I labeled them global settings. Anyway, it's whatever it is. Yeah. Anyway, this problem of like, OK, I, like that's the app they want. I wanted to make in switch class. It seems easy. Like I'll just make, you know, I'll I'll walk through the list of monitors and I'll put a little, you know, on first launch, I'll put a little palette on every single monitor. Uh, and then when people make, you know, if preferences. They'll change the settings, and then when they change the settings, I'll save them. Uh, but I have to save the settings for each monitor. Like, all right, I made this palette like really big in the upper right, so I got to say, okay, really big in the upper right applies to this monitor. Well, what is this monitor? I need some way to identify monitors, just like macOS, you know, and and poor Nathaniel needs some way to identify monitors. So I'm I'm gonna save I'm gonna save this state. I'm gonna save somehow this monitor. And I thought, foolishly, this would be an easy thing to do. There's probably some API you call that just gives you some kind of identifier for the monitor that's unique to that monitor, and you just save it. But, you know, nothing nothing in, uh, in software development is ever that easy, especially in those weird edge case areas that I'm wandering in macOS, right? Turns out there is no really good way to do that. There's a bunch of ways that look super tempting. One of them is like a monitor ID or a display ID that you get. And the very first thing I did is, oh, display ID. There you go. That's easy. And it's like some big number. Uh, and if you save that number, when you launch it again, uh, and you set and you look up the, dis- go through all the displays, you'll find the one with the same ID and it matches up. I'm like, this is great. I'm like, oh, but what if this number changes every time you reboot? So I rebooted my computer number stayed the same. I'm like, well, problem solved. This is like day one. Um, what a great developer I am. I've just solved this problem. <laughs> uh, no, that's a trap. Uh, <laughs> so I don't, I forget what it is. Like Apple doesn't promise that this thing does what it does, but it's called like ID or something. And it, and practically speaking, it works. So like I figured I was done. Uh, and then I started getting weird bug reports from people. And it turns out if you have a Mac laptop with a discrete and an integrated GPU, when it switches from the discrete to the integrated GPU, that number changes. <laughs> and, and the bug reports I was getting for this were mind bending. Cause I was like, 
A, this never happens for me. And B, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like, when I do it, because, because again, they would do something unknowingly that triggered the use of the discrete GPU. And, and if they did that and then they launched the app, like, it would pull the settings from the discrete GPU number. Like, because the numbers were stable, but they were different numbers for discrete and integrated. It took me so long to figure that out. Anyway, that doesn't work. <laughs> so I need some other way to identify it. There's a bunch of info you can get using weird-ass C APIs that tell you the vendor, the make, the model number, and the serial number. I'm like, I'm home free because even if you have the exact same monitor, they're not going to have the same serial number, right? All right, crack developers, what was the problem with this API? Private? No, I mean, this is Mac. I can do whatever the hell I want. No, not private. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe you, you need uh, – Casey should know this. You're a computer engineer. Hardware sucks. <laughs> you buy okay. some random ass monitor and you call these apis oh this one doesn't return anything for serial number this one doesn't return anything for model number this one doesn't return anything for vendor <laughs> <laughs> monitors oh, they, like and in the apis they say um, you can call this api and it will return like a, a number representing the vendor or it will return fffffff <laughs> and, and like monitors in the real world like, and I need all three. Like, I can't just do make and model because, again, if you have two identical monitors, which a lot of people have, I still can't tell what monitor is. They're both the same make and model. But some they return nothing for anything. Some And, and then the internal display <laughs> sometimes returns weird stuff because the internal display is made by weird different manufacturers, right? So that little API is out the window. Can't use that because hardware is oh like, gosh. I don't have a serial number. I don't know what you're talking about. Finally, what I settled on was... There's a color, what is it, color sync or com- some color space API. There's some API that does some crap that I don't understand out of the covers that gives me a number that is my best effort. It is like, it's stable across GPU switches. Even on monitors that don't return a serial number, it returns a stable identifier. I honestly have no idea where it's coming from, and I think it's related to like color sync thing, but the OS does have some way to identify the monitor. I don't think that is even 100% reliable, but it's reliable enough that I no longer get these bug reports. All this long story is to say that the act of, in macOS, the act of identifying a monitor so that you know the next time the computer boards up, that's the same monitor I saw before, is actually extremely difficult. And it would not surprise me if the Herculean efforts that I went through to make sure this works in all weird scenarios is not what the, you know, the monitor arrangement handling of mac os proper goes through because i can imagine mac os proper might use for example the make model and serial number and just say well of course everything always returns you know a serial number and then just not care about some you know cheap knockoff monitor that doesn't do that right but you know and or maybe the color sync uh, thing or whatever it is that i'm using the one of the failure modes is in nathaniel's specific case with his specific monitors so i don't have a good answer for you but i can tell you that this problem is not well solved in mac os uh, and it doesn't surprise me that you're having these problems uh and i would love i mean i'll file this on a radar at some point or feedback or whatever i would love for apple to provide apis that perform this function because i think being able to identify the same monitor across boots is important i kind of feel for apple though because if you literally have an identical monitor and that monitor just lies or just doesn't tell you anything about itself and there's another one right next to it that does the exact same thing. How do you tell which monitor is? I mean, maybe maybe somewhere under the covers, again, the GPU identifier. But like on boot up when it senses these two monitors, like maybe you could tell what port they're connected to. I don't I don't even know. Anyway, this is a hard problem. I'm sorry, Nathaniel. 
Uh, and it's one of my many miniature war stories about dealing with switch glass. Uh, and I, I feel for all of us. Just have a single monitor. That's the solution. Get a really, get a really, really big $5,000 monitor. That's my advice. Oh, excellent. Six if you want the stand. <laughs> you know what? I'd actually forgotten about the stand until Marco said that. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> but I recommend expensive products. <laughs> now let's not forget. All right, Mike Milanazzo or... Perhaps Casey Liss writes, as a part-time developer with no design skills, I struggle with finding ways to improve the look and overall design of my apps. I can't afford to pay anyone to help at this point, so I'm looking for resources that I can learn from. I often look at popular apps as well as other apps in the same space as my apps, but I feel like it's one of those you don't know what you don't know situations where I might not recognize small details, buttons with a slight shadow, spacing on, spacing on different elements, etc. Do you know of any websites or YouTube channels that do app teardowns that could be a good way for me to hear experts give constructive feedback? Any other resources you can recommend a part-time developer with little artistic sensibilities? Well, I'm all ears, gentlemen. What do you got? <laughs> I should have an answer to this, but the simple answer is no, I don't. Um, I have gone into this process myself for the same reason. I, too, have been a developer with no design skills that couldn't afford to pay someone else for help. Um, I have now moved into being a developer with some design skills who <laughs> doesn't feel like paying people for help because I like doing everything myself if I can, and it has all sorts of benefits for things like speed and, and workflow and everything, doing it that way. Um, first of all, there's no shame in this. Like, There's no shame in... My apps are kind of ugly, and I don't know how to help, and I and I can't afford a designer. Like that's a very common place to be for for developers. So there's no shame in this, you know. Own it as Mike is, <laughs> so that's fine. Um, and and you know, don't be afraid to you know actually address this and 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 call it out in public and and be and be vulnerable in this way and and solicit feedback from people who will give it. Also. There are like just kind of certain general principles that you can start with. One of the best is like you could actually read the Hig. I haven't, but you could because uh, <laughs> it, it like when it comes to things like sizing of controls, spacing, a lot of design comes down to just following the platform standard. And many of iOS's tools and and you know things like auto layout, um, things like even the hell was that <laughs> sorry there's some kids outside that just threw a rock at my window what seriously terminate his developer account yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it should be all right they ran away oh, i was gonna say are they looking to like flirt with you or something is this like you know a late 90s early 2000s date movie yeah. seems unlikely go to the window maybe it's some romance are they holding up a boom box perhaps marco hasn't seen it neither have i i just know the reference uh, i think i've seen like bits and pieces like on tnt or something anyway um <laughs> Auto layout, Swift UI, you get a lot of this stuff for free of like following the standard spacing, following standard sizing, etc. So a lot of it is like if you if you don't actively mess with it, it will be right. <laughs> and so that's 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 like one way to to kind of ensure that you have like a, a reasonable uh, design is just like follow things that are as standard as possible if you can. One of the other major areas of design becomes typography. And this goes to not only like how you lay out your text, but where you lay it out in the UI, what style of text you use for different elements, what sizing, what spacing, how you word things, how you capitalize and punctuate things. And all of the, like the, the style of how to do that 
is all spelled out in various style guides all over the place. You know, Apple has style guides here and there. Um, you can also just kind of look at what other apps do. Like if you, it, when you're writing your setting screen text or whatever, you can you can go and look and see like what do most other apps do for capitalization of this setting? Do they capitalize every word? Do they capitalize only the first word? Stuff like that. Like you can you can kind of look at other apps. This is this is how I've learned most of my app design skill, if you can call it that. Taking cues from what do what like what do Apple's built-in apps do in this way? What and and look at the like, really boring ones like Mail. Like wh- like how 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 do Apple's built-in apps or like the Settings app? How do how do they design this thing? What size icon do they use in this context? What style of text and capitalization do they use in this context? Etc. That's a lot of design right there. And then as you get more comfortable with this, when as you start to make things fancier just kind of be careful like dip your toe in things slowly so for instance if you want to do something like add a custom font that's a risky move you can do it well you can do it poorly be careful go into it slowly like add like one font not seven (laughs) that's step one (laughs) um use it you know gently like dip your toe in slowly don't pick like a super extreme font with like tons of overt personality that that might be you know off-putting to people and stuff like that um as you're sizing your your text or picking colors or at least color like shades of gray for your text don't use a bunch of different shades or a bunch of different colors pick like a small number of colors and a small number of sizes and a small number of styles stuff like that so 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 you end up dipping your toe slowly into custom design rather than looking like a ransom note from made of made of torn up magazines (laughs) <laughs> and so yeah but other than that i i uh, unfortunately i can't actually recommend like specific youtube channels or books or websites to do this because not only do i not know of any off the top of my head and i didn't really read or watch any but also if you start asking designers uh you know you can go to like you know various designer websites or forums or have designers yell at you on twitter if you ask them what is the right way to do this or what's the best way to do this or how do I make this better? They're all going to give you different answers. They're going to disagree with each other. They're going to be contradictory. Many of them are going to be wrong. Many of them are going to be bad or many of them are going to, be, are going to actually work worse in the context of an app because designers aren't all perfect. They're, I mean, how many developers do you know who are perfect? <laughs> I think I know zero. <laughs> like, I, and if you think about development as as a practice, it's pretty much impossible to do it perfectly. And you can ask four developers in a room how to do something, and you're going to get four very different answers. And design is the same way. Designers don't all agree on everything. They're not just one like monolithic block that they can give you like the, the one true answer. They're going to have recommendations that are all over the map. And some of them are, some of them are going to be bad designers. Some of them are going to be great designers. And it's kind of hard to tell if you don't know <laughs> what you're getting ahead of time. So it's actually really hard to involve other people in a, in a, in a great way here. Like there, no one person is going to tell you everything correctly and everything you need to know. So it is worth developing the skill on your own. It is worth like developing a sensibility of at least like general guidelines of like, here's, I can make a pretty good version one. And then if I get a lot of feedback to a certain point, then maybe I can adjust the screen or adjust this, you know font or move this control or if my users are not finding something or if they're complaining about how something looks like maybe then adjust it um but yeah overall this is this is a worthwhile skill to develop but it is i i don't unfortunately know of any good shortcuts to do it except try to 
mimic what the system apps do as much as possible if you have any doubt on a design choice. I'll just make one modification to what Marco said in one edition. Uh, the modification is I think you should read the HIG, the Apple Human Interface Guidelines. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be super helpful. It's not going to tell you exactly what to do, but there's tons of text there. And even if you disagree with it, it's it has a rationale. And you will find things in the HIG, especially if you're not an experienced designer, that you hadn't even thought about, that you hadn't even thought this was a thing to make a decision about it all. Even if you disagree with the decision that the Higgs says, or it seems weird or whatever, you don't don't agree with the rationale, just knowing that this is a thing that you should think about and make a decision about is valuable. So I would absolutely read the Higgs, you know, not, not read it as the Bible, but read it just to sort of get the lay of the land, you know, start learning what it is that you don't know. And the addition I would say is, you know, find other developers to bounce things off of uh, ideally they'd be more experienced developers but even if it's just a bunch of people who are at the same level of experience having other people you know put their eyes on what you're working on really helps like you know so i've i've been a mac user since 1984 i know what mac uis should look like uh when i was making my first mac app i could tell it was wrong <laughs> like it's you know if you have experience with the platform you're like well i'm not a designer but I've been using a Mac for years and this looks messed up. I was very able to tell that, you know, I got like a bunch of controls I'm laying out in a dialogue and it's not, it doesn't look right to me. Like it's off. And I can even tell you what specifically was wrong with it. It's, it feels heavy on this side and this spacing feels too tight. It's like, okay, well then what if you just make the spacing bigger? It's like, no, it's still wrong. Like I have a very finely tuned sense of what is right and wrong from vast experience with the platform. But what I didn't have vast experience with is say you've got this bucket full of controls how do you lay them out in a way that doesn't feel wrong? It's real easy to do it when you just have a simple problem or like one of the examples from the HIG. But what about when you've got your app with your stuff in it and experienced Mac developers say, oh, I've been faced with that same bucket of controls and here's how I dealt with it. I did it like this, I did it like that. And again, they're not going to agree, but you know, the way I essentially workshopped like in my very first dinky little Mac app, the one tiny little preference window I bounced it off a bunch of vastly more experienced Mac developers and they also didn't agree, <laughs> right? But we could all agree it was wrong and they had some good ideas about how to make it better. And then I essentially took the idea that I like the best and modify it with my own taste and then would bring it back again and say, what do you, I mean, I think Marco was in the channel in case you were both in the channel when I was doing this. I would relay out the dialogue and say, what do you think of this? And then five more opinions would chime in and then I would, you know, <laughs> do the same thing find the opinion that i agreed the most with give it a try and try it again and iterate and so on and so forth that's a great way to learn and obviously maybe you're not going to have access to a slack channel with like people with decades of of development experience but surely you have access to some other developers and law of averages mean that some of them will be more experienced or better designers than you that combined with what marco was saying you know you just got to put in the time and do all those things and i think you'll be fine there's no uh become a great designer in 21 weeks course that you're going to find on youtube that's going to do what just putting in the time and giving it a try and you know doing some basic background reading and bouncing ideas off your friends that's all there is to it a krishna rao writes i'm a longtime windows user since the early 90s but i love my iphone and ipad the new move to big sur and apple silicon that can run apps across apple platforms has me finally contemplating the big switch where do i start i'm a power user and want more than the basics uh, that's such an open-ended question. I don't even know where to start with the answer, to be honest with you. Um, if you want to laugh, you can look through the exchange that Marco and I had 15, no, 12 years ago now. <laughs> Before the iPhone or iPad existed. 
was it? Was it? I thought it was after the iPhone, but maybe you're, you're probably right. Maybe it was 2006. I thought it was 2008. But anyways, we a long time ago had this uh, conversation publicly via Tumblr, uh, and so you can go get a get a good laugh about that. But I, 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 I don't know. Where do you start with this? So this question doesn't make it clear whether uh, this is about hardware or software. Is it like what? hardware should i buy or where should i get started learning about things i mean uh, on the on the sort of software slash knowledge side listening to weird nerdy podcasts like adp is a great start because even though especially if you're new to the platform a lot of the stuff we talk about is going to go over your head just through osmosis and exposure you will start to learn things about the platform again kind of like reading the the hig you'll learn what the issues are and the lay of the land. Maybe you won't understand the details, but you're like, oh, this is a thing and that's a thing. And maybe you'll hear us talk about something like, you know, clipboard managers or something, which you probably know from Windows already anyway. But just, just as an example, a category of app that we talk about as if it's just a thing that everybody knows about, uh, but maybe you're not familiar with or like, you know, quick launchers like LaunchBar or whatever, and that will send you down a rabbit hole. And then, you know, uh, outside the podcast world, finding websites or people to follow on Twitter that are themselves mac power users and just uh, you know absorbing the fire hose of those websites those blogs those twitter streams you will pick up everything you need to know about being a more advanced user on the platform like i i know people always want sort of the like i said the 21 day course or whatever just like here you go here's everything you need to know and people always want someone to create those and they hope they exist. But the thing is, stuff like that dates very quickly and has a huge amount of opinion inserted into it and generally isn't financially, uh, you know, very advantageous. So they tend not to exist. Or if they exist, they're they're either were never valuable or they're no longer valuable because they're too far out of date, right? So a lot, people who learn that way, people are like, look, just tell me everything I need to know. Like, I'll learn, I learn well from videos. I learn well from reading. Tell me that about this new thing. In most new things, that doesn't exist. The example I always go back to, I think I wrote about once, is like remote control cars. Like, tell me everything I need to know about remote control cars. Like, no, that's not it's not the way it works. What happens is you get a car and you build it and you break it and you buy a bunch of magazines filled with stuff that you don't understand and you read them for a year and at the end of the year, you know more than you did at the beginning. That's it. Like, there's no, there's no course, there's no instruction, there's no smooth path to learning. It's just dive in there uh, and expose yourself to... The things that you want, you know, the, the things that you want to achieve, find people who are already there and then just absorb their output. Even if in the beginning it doesn't make any sense to you, it will eventually. And that's that's the way we all got to where we are. We didn't know anything about computers and we just went to, you know, we just sat in front of it and plugged away or went to the computer class or the computer club. I took I took typing courses, they called them, but we were typing on computers, which meant that I could figure out how to print my name on the screen in between the typing, le- you know, like... There's no, there's no shortcut. Just like the designer question, there's no shortcut. But the good news is there's tons of resources, no matter how you want to consume it. If you like YouTube, there's plenty of YouTubers where you can just watch them start talking about tech stuff. If you like podcasts, hey, here you are, right? If you like blogs or websites, there's ton of, tons of those out there. Um, just find the ones that, that appeal to you and just start start absorbing. And you will learn. And if this is a question about what computer to buy, I'm sorry, we, we failed you, but we'll be more specific next time. <laughs> well, yeah, where do I start? Buy a Mac. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's step well, one. Which one? Yeah, I know. Well, some. Anyway. Buy a laptop. No, don't do that. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we can't even agree on that. You're not buying anything until the ARM Macs come out. So, you know, hold that yeah. thought. Well, 
But like, I mean, would you tell somebody like, don't switch to our platform right now? Like, I don't think I would tell them that. I, I think I would, you know, it's not the best time in the world to buy a Mac hardware. Our platform? I didn't. What? I didn't get my check. Do you get a check? It's not my platform. <laughs> you don't get your thirty yeah, percent. Yeah, where's my thirty percent? I built this platform. Yeah. Now, I would. I would say. I would say, especially if you if you're a longtime Windows user thinking of switching, because because this person says. Uh, because of the ARM transition and the ability to run iPad apps, right? You know, that has me finally contemplating the big switch. Yeah, wait wait for ARM. If you, if you can, wait for ARM, for sure. If you're switching platforms, like that means you're already on a platform and you're fine. Stay there. It'll, you know, wait until ARM Macs are available. They will hopefully be compelling, and that's that's the thing that is specifically attracting this person. Yeah, and you probably won't have a long wait. I mean, maybe like another month before the first one is available, and it's probably going to be yeah. a laptop, so yeah. And only two years until, in theory, they're all available because it's a two-year transition if all goes to plan. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much to our sponsors this week, Hey.com, Squarespace, and Raycon. And thank you to our members who support us directly. You can learn more about that at atp.fm slash join. And we will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Cause it was accidental. accidental Oh, it was accidental. accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L ISS, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse, it's accidental. So Alex Keeling wrote in, and I think this was supposed to be an Ask ATP question, but uh, we wanted to move it to a uh, Ask Neutral question. <laughs> Are we doing uh, that now? Alex, <laughs> yeah, that's a thing now. Uh, Alex uh, asked, uh, she, she was asking about general stick shift driving techniques and advice. And I don't have the actual uh, letter written to us, but basically, how do you drive a stick? Um, I could answer this question, and then John will explain that Everything I've said is wrong, even though it wouldn't be. So let me just cut to the chase and ask John, how do you drive a stick? You're not gonna you you can chime in on these bullet points. I feel like we can all chime in on them. We've all driven stick. I I mean this wasn't directly from her thing. I just like listed a bunch of uh because you know, she was just, you know, asking in general, but it, this is my list of like things that people talk about about driving stick, and maybe I, I left stuff off. But just chime in. Go ahead, tell us what you think about all the bullet points. <laughs> all right. So uh to start, uh how do you learn? Uh there are very, very different ideas about how to do it. But I and I've only taught a couple of people to be honest with you, but what I like is starting out without using the gas at all. So you're stopped dead. You, using your left foot, of course, you slowly come off the clutch until you see or and or feel and or hear the engine start to bog a little bit because the, the clutch is starting to pick up. And then you push the pedal all the way back down, do that again to feel where it is the clutch is starting to grab. And you do that a whole bunch of times, just not even intending to move. You know, hopefully you're on a flat surface and you're just kind of staying still. And you're getting a feel for where the clutch is really grabbing. Then you do the same thing extremely slowly, 
but eventually let yourself get to a roll. So you're eventually all the way off the clutch. And then you stop and you do that again. And you do it super slowly, a whole crap load of times. And then once you get a feel for how that works, just make it faster. Simple, right? That's all you got to do. Um, and that's that's how I like uh, just do just learning how to get going. Um, the other, well, it used to be pro tip, but not as much anymore uh, because of electronic parking brakes. But the other thing you can do is if you're ever on a hill and need to take off, particularly if you're in a front wheel drive car, which most are, then you can use your handbrake to hold you where you are while you're doing the whole dance with your feet and then release the handbrake with your hand once you start to creep forward. Um, that is a very neat trick that I didn't know for a long time and I wish I'd known when I was first learning. But in terms of technique and advice, um, I am a big believer in uh, John's first bullet here, which is downshifting and engine braking. So what that means is as you're approaching, say, a stoplight, you would, and let's say you're in, I don't know, fourth gear because you're just around town. As you're approaching the stoplight and you see it's red, downshift into third and then come completely off the gas. And what is it? The compression of the engine will force the engine to try to slow down. And when you're off the clutch, that means if the engine's slowing down, your wheels are slowing down. And so I'll downshift once or twice, or maybe even three times coming up to a, to a stop sign or stop light. And that's again, downshifting and engine braking. And I am, I am in favor of this. Some people would argue that that's a poor choice because you'd rather wear your brakes than wear your engine. And I understand that, but I don't know. I've always, I've always done it. John, before I move on to the next bullet, thoughts about that? You should you should do all the bullets because you've already gone through learning and downshifting. So I'm gonna okay. Go ahead. All right, I'll carry on then. Uh, common guidance, which I am terrible at, do as I say, not as I do. Keep your hand off the shifter. It's bad for the lift linkage. It's bad for the transmission potentially. Just don't touch the shifter if you're not actively shifting. I often rest my hand on the shifter, which is not at all what you're supposed to do. Uh, but you should keep your hand off of it. Uh, if you want to make things smoother. And this is kind of like moving from novice to amateur level. If you want to make things smoother on a downshift, then you can do what's called rev matching. So let's say you're cruising at, and I'm making this up, but let's say you're cruising at 40 miles an hour in fourth gear and you're at 2000 RPM. Well, you know, or you will learn over time that if you were to downshift at 40 miles an hour from fourth to third, then that will bring you to about 3000 RPM from 2000 RPM. Well, what you can do in order to make things a little smoother is you would press the clutch, you would blip the throttle, do a little with your right foot to get the RPMs of the engine up to about 3,000 RPM or wherever you think it'll land, and then you come off the clutch. And the reason you do that is because then the engine and the transmission are all in their appropriate uh, relative speeds such, such that there's no like jerking backward and forward. The, uh, the opposite of this is just popping the clutch, which means you are, you know, you're doing what I say, 30, 40 miles an hour in fourth gear. You press in the clutch, you downshift to third and you just come right off the clutch real fast. And then you'll, you'll feel that like of, of your whole body shifting as the engine and the transmission are coming back into an, an even relative speed. So I, again, strongly encourage rev matching. Um, it, uh, it will make your downshifts particularly, um, considerably smoother. Then if you want to go from novice or, well, you've, you've gone from amateur to novice. Now, if you want to go from novice to expert level, you can do what's called heel towing, uh, which is something I also do, uh, which is kind of difficult, although I do it in the wrong way. 
So the way you're supposed to heel toe is you're supposed to put the toes of your right foot on the brake, which is the middle pedal, and you're supposed to twist your your foot such that the right heel can press the gas pedal. So the idea is... What, what makes you think that's the way you're supposed to do it? Because it's called heel toe. Mm, I think you... I mean, I, I understand that it can be done both ways, but I think the way you describe... I would say the way you described is the wrong way. Well, in this, and the way I described is not the way I do it, and I'll describe how I do it in just a moment. But like, if you ever see um, like racing drivers doing what I would call a heel-toe downshift, I almost always see them done with a twist of the foot, such that instead of your foot, you know, instead of your toes being at midnight and your heel being at six, your toes are at like ten and your heel is at like four. Um, and again, that's not the way I do it, but that's the quote-unquote standard way of doing it. Uh, you just, I think that's the opposite of what you just described. I'm basically, I'm saying heel on the brake, toe on the gas. But you were saying toe on the gas, he, uh, toe on the brake, heel on the gas? Correct. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's the way I always thought I saw it, was that you're you're twisting your foot counterclockwise. Uh, I, I, whenever I see videos of people's feet, I, I always see heel on the brake, toe on the gas. And that's the way I think of it. Obviously, both of them will work. Huh. It's just, you know, anyway, continue to the description. Like, why are we, why are we touching the gas and the brake at the same time? Right. So the the theory is you're, especially if you're driving in with the quickness, not all, you know, it doesn't have to be that way, but often if you're driving with quickness, you're coming up into a turn very quickly. You're going to brake as you're entering the turn. And then on the way out of the turn, you're going to want to stand on that gas as, as much as you can. But because you've lost all that speed in the turn, you're now in the wrong gear. So the idea is you will start your braking and then press your foot on the clutch to come down a gear. And then as you're braking and your foot is on the clutch, you've already on, you're already on top of two pedals. You would like to do that blip of the throttle to do the rev matching that we were just talking about at the same time. So you now have three pedals you need to interact with and only two feet to do it unless you're extremely gifted. And so what you would do is you would blip the throttle with potentially your heel, potentially your toe, or what I actually do, and I've done in every car I've ever owned, is I keep my foot vertically oriented. My toes are at midnight. My my uh, my heel is at six p.m. or a.m. or whatever. And but I will roll my my foot. So I'm pit, I'm rolling as though I don't know how to. Just, it's so hard to paint a word picture here. But I'm rolling the right edge of my foot such that it's hitting the gas. <laughs> this is terrible podcasting. <laughs> it is terrible. Podcasting. I'm so happy I'm this so is the after show. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you you roll your foot such that. You can press the gas with the right side of your foot and the brake with the, with the left side of your foot. Um, now, someone in the chat is saying, oh, this is racing technique and not safe driving. I disagree, actually. I think it is safer to not disrupt the balance of the car. So this is more necessary in racing. But I still think if you're coming through a turn and you need to downshift, the, the last thing you want to just do is disrupt the balance of the car. And if you're popping the clutch or doing a whole bunch of things in, in, in serial rather than parallel, that can disrupt the balance of the car. So that's what I would call heel-toe shift. And John, I'm, I'm genuinely curious to hear how you perform such a, such a maneuver. Uh, because again, for me, it's a roll with the left, foot on, left side of the foot on the brake, right side of the foot on the gas. Oh my God. I, I just... I have, you know, I drove manual for probably 10 years. I never did any of this stuff except downshifting sometimes. <laughs> this doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and, and it was fine. I like I never lost a clutch. I never blew out an engine. <laughs> like, it's fine. Like, you, you don't need to do almost any of this. 
<laughs> the electric car owner speaks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you, John. Uh, but hey, Alex asked, what, what, what do we recommend? Well, this is what we recommend. This is the crash course. In- this is what Casey recommends so far. Alex asked about, quote, general stick shift driving techniques and advice. This is none of that. <laughs> Casey added his own bullet point for learning, but everything else I think is <laughs> in the kind of, one, one more bullet point, Casey, the last one. Well, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. Uh, and then finally, double clutching. So I'm a little weaker on this. This is not something I ever do. But the idea is typically with a car with uh, synchros, which is basically every modern car, you, you would just, let's say you're going from second to third, you press in the clutch, you move the shifter, you po- you come off the clutch. Well, it used to be, and it still is in certain circumstances, like, you know, 18 wheelers, for example, that in order to get the transmission and the engine spinning at, at reasonable rates, you would need to kind of modulate that yourself. So instead, what you would do is you would push the clutch in, get the, the gear shift in neutral, come off the clutch, push the, cl- push the clutch in again, then put the gear shift in third, and then come off the clutch. And that's double clutching. And maybe John has a legitimate reason why you would do this in a modern car. I I never, ever, ever do this. And that is all the bullets that John put in. And off the top of my head, that's actually all the things that I... Oh, actually, one other thing. If you live in a snowy climate, or if you're in a situation where you, you maybe you're on a slick road or something like that, it is possible to start from a dead stop in gears other than first gear. Spoken as someone who didn't learn stick on a car with 75 horsepower. <laughs> well, there, there is that. Um, I assure you my Volvo wagon could not come start in any conditions in second gear. Oh, come on. It, oh, come yeah. it, had four, it had four gears plus an overdrive button, and second gear was not going to send you anywhere. One, one of my happiest moments with my Maxima was when I was starting from a stop going uphill, a pretty steep stop, and the Maxima did not have hill hold. Uh, it was too old for that. This is 1996 Maxima, so it was long before that was a common thing. Uh, and uh, and so I got it from first, or I, I got it from a stop. I thought I was in first, and I was uphill, and I just slowly crept up the hill. And man, that was harder than I thought. And then I realized, oh, I was in third. And I just started in third, uphill, and it didn't stall. It made it like it didn't have a lot of extra power, but it did, it did make it. It had more had more than a giant Volvo wagon that probably weighed a million tons with a seventy five horsepower engine. Yeah, all I'm saying is, if you're in a modern car and you're in like snow or something like that, you're it is potentially advantageous to start in second or potentially even third because you're putting less torque against the wheels that are driving the car and that would make it less likely to do like a burnout or whatever the case may be oh burnout uh if you're in a front or rear wheel drive car and not an all-wheel drive car give the car way too many revs you know three four five thousand rpm as you're sitting still and then just pop the clutch and that's basically all you need to do although you're probably in a modern car you're probably going to need to turn off traction control and all that jazz but you can do it uh, that is the list, I think. Let me uh, let me try to add as you're talking, John, the things I just came up with. But what did I go? Where did I go wrong? What did I forget? I'm not going to go into learning because we have a separate thing for that. Maybe I'll talk about that. I'm 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 of this podcast the only person who has successfully taught another human how to drive stick, as far as I know. That's not true. Another, another not human true. Human produced. I taught David Carp how to drive stick. <laughs> a child human, my mm-hmm. own child. Okay, human. fair enough. Yeah, he was only 19 mm-hmm. at the time. Does that count? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I'll talk about that some other time. That's a whole different thing. Um, downshifting versus engine braking. Like the, the trade-off, Casey mostly got it, uh, all the points I would want to make, but the trade-off is uh, 
is not i would say it's not between like uh wearing your brakes versus wearing the engine it's wearing your brakes versus wearing your wearing your clutch right so when you when you engine brake you're not letting the clutch shift but it is more stress on the clutch in a situation when you wouldn't be doing it at all you're downshifting engaging a lower gear and if you're not doing rev matching all of a sudden the you know the engine the, the transmission is going faster than the engine and then the transmission is connected to the engine all of a sudden it speeds the engine up and yes that is wear on the engine but it's also wear on the clutch because you've just touched a clutch to the transmission you've you know you've made you've made it those surfaces and they were turning at different speeds if again if you didn't do rev matching right uh if you don't engine brake at all you will wear your brakes down way faster right and you say well brakes actually are more expensive than a clutch if you look at how much it costs to replace four brake pads that's more expensive than one clutch if you look at the parts cost unfortunately the clutch is inside your car in a place (laughs) that is hard to get to Mm -hmm. and so changing your clutch tends to be way more expensive than changing your pads um all that said i mean i feel like that's the trade-off you're doing I think it is essentially unsafe not to do any engine braking in a stick shift car. I mean, maybe it's because I'm using cheap cars, but the brakes alone without using any form of engine braking will make you feel like your car is worse braking because it does. Any car with a non-manual transmission uses some form of engine braking to help slow the car down. Like, they, you know, an automatic transmission does not shift into neutral as soon as you try to come to a stop from 60 miles an hour. Like, try that in a stick shift car in a safe way. Go 60 hold down the clutch and try to brake and then do the same thing with downshifting. It's night and day. So you have to downshift and use engine braking. That has to be part of your driving. You don't have to do it horrendously. You can do some braking with less engine braking. You can downshift less aggressively, but I feel like you you have to know how to downshift an engine brake. Even if you just do it as like a matter of, I find myself doing it as a routine, like a stopping from 30, I will go through all the gears back down to one. Sometimes I, you know, at, while I'm doing that, I'm barely engaging the gears in between just because it's a casual stop. It's just a good habit to get into. And my history has shown, like, I sold my 1992 Accord just as the clutch was going, and that was an over a 10 year old car. Like, eventually, all clutches wear out, whether you do engine braking or not. But it's not like you're going to wear through your clutch in the first year or whatever. It'll be fine. Please learn how to downshift and do engine braking. Keeping your hand on the shifter? No, don't do that. Um, I think most of the stories about how bad it is are sort of like, you know, tales that we tell each other, legends, urban legends about, oh, it's going to mess up your linkage and you're putting stress on the. I'm not even sure if that's true, but there's a more important reason. If your hand is on the shifter and you like sneeze and you knock it out of gear or do something like it, just don't have your hand on a control surface that you're not planning to control. You're just asking for you to screw something up. So don't rest your hand on the shifter. Isn't the steering wheel a control surface? Right, but you have to constantly steer, but you don't have to be constantly shifting. <laughs> how much how much control of your hands are you losing <laughs> when you sneeze? You could get startled or whatever. Like it's, I mean, obviously you have to be steering. Like you if you could avoid holding the steering wheel and you didn't have to steer then yeah, you shouldn't <laughs> hand, shouldn't be on that either, but you have to steer, but you don't have to constantly be shifting. So why touch your hand to a thing that you could potentially screw up when there's no reason you need to be touching it? Don't Also, ha- you know. Again, like in my probably decade of driving stick, I don't think I ever accidentally knocked the car out of gear. Like that's kind of hard to do. Right, but do you do you rest your hand on the shifter the entire time you're driving? Of course, it looks cool. This, that's terrible. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> don't be one of those people. It's I was good. totally one of those people, and it was fine. <laughs> I am one of those people, but I know I shouldn't. Be. <laughs> yeah, no. It's just. It's, I mean, yeah. Maybe in some kinds of cars or some older cars or some newer cars, it actually is bad to rest on the linkage. I just don't know if that's specifically true. I feel like the safety thing is more compelling. But in general, it's not, 
I'm not going to say sanitary, like it's not it, it's not like proper technique. It's like it's like piloting a plane and leaving your hand resting on the landing gear switch. It's like, oh, I've never accidentally turned it on. Just get your hand off of it. Do you need to use landing gear now? Then just don't have your hand on the switch. Oh, I've never accidentally turned it on. Just don't do it. Um, rev matching. If I had fancier cars, I would probably be more into it. But my cars tend to be have so little power uh, that this is not that big an issue. That said, it's kind of hard not to rev match once you get the hang of stick because you know again that you're about to 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 shift and you know the engine is not going fast enough for the gear you're about to engage like you're about to you're about to pass right you downshift or at least i do in my wimpy cars i have to downshift to pass anybody that's always going to happen right and when i downshift <laughs> i know that the engine needs to be going way faster in this gear than it's currently going you're going to get a head start on that. You're going to say, well, engine, get ready. Because like, if you don't do it and you just downshift, you have to, especially in my wimpy cars, you have to baby the clutch engagement so you don't suddenly lurch because you know, it's, it's that in, the, the delta is big and the like. There's not, a lot of, there's not enough torque and power to just sort of overcome that easily. So you have to baby the engagement. And if you don't baby the engagement, then it's lurchy. And it's like, why don't I just cut to the chase and get the engine up to the speed that I know round about the speed? And the question is, how do I know what speed needs to be? You just know it needs to be faster than it is, right? The bad part about this is, depending on the, uh, the size uh, and weight of the flywheel in your car, blipping the throttle like this is something when i was looking at that cool uh what was it the the t50 what the hell is the name of that car from the guy who made the mclaren um, oh yeah i know what you're thinking of I already it, like it either has like no flywheel or such a lightweight flywheel that it would literally be impossible for a human to blip the throttle because you'd blip it and then it would go up briefly and then go right back down before you could even even engage the gear right so it all depends on you having a flywheel in your car that says okay when i blip the throttle I can then go back to changing the gear and get it into gear before the engine reverts to its previous speed. And in, you know, in this super fancy $2 million supercar with like no flywheel, you can't do that. And, and in modern cars, they, they do the rev matching for you a lot of times. I have never actually driven a car with its own rev matching, but certainly the engine computer can do it better than you ever will because A, it knows the actual speed it needs to be, and B, it can do that while your feet are doing other things. Yeah, I've, I've driven one. My dad's Corvette has optional automatic rev matching. I think it's on by default, but it's fairly easy to turn off. Um, in fact, yeah, his his car, which is a seven-speed stick, has paddles behind the wheel as though it's... Yeah, I was just, I was just going to say, you know, you know why they do that? You know why it has paddles there? Yeah, it's for the rev matching. It's so... It's, no, like, no, no, no. Those paddles are the paddles that you use to shift the car if you don't get it with the stick. And, sure. And GM being the cheap car company, oh, well, yeah, they yeah, didn't yeah, want yeah. to make a separate mm-hmm. steering wheel without the paddles, sure. so they just want to have the same steering So they just take the <laughs> paddles and they put them and they just write rev match on them and they connect the wires to a different function. But you literally have two gigantic pedals, the same exact pedals that you would get for shifting that Corvette if you didn't have a stick, and they just put a white rev match at the top of each one, which is... I don't think it said rev, ma- rev match at the top, but otherwise I think we're saying the same thing. And yeah, The ZR1, because that video I had about the ZR1, I was... I was laughing at that part like why the hell does this car have these giant paddles like oh so it could be the same steering wheel (laughs) so they don't have to have a second part yeah yeah they they turn this bug into a feature anyway but his his car does do it and it was more accurate than when i did it but i think that's for me that's part of the fun is is trying to get a good rev match downshift and so i quickly disabled it although if i was like taking it to the track or something like that i i would probably leave it enabled yeah, heel toe. I am terrible at. I don't know if it's because I have big goofy feet. I don't know if it's because my little Hondas don't have pedals spacing or positioning that is amenable to it. But I am so bad at it that I don't. I've never found it to be. I've never been successful enough at it to find it to be enjoyable or useful. 
with with the things I already described of just like human rev matching and careful clutch engagement. You and the fact that I'm not really going that fast in an accord, like I'm not unsettling the chassis through corners, Casey. I feel I, I kind of uh, <laughs> relate to the people who are saying this is kind of more of a racing thing. Like if you're worried about the chassis becoming unsettled in corners, slow down. <laughs> like yeah, it's a cool thing to play with or whatever. And maybe if I had a sports car again, if I had a car with more power or a car that even had the notion that you might attempt this, I assure you that no, none of the Hondas that I've ever owned had a notion that people can try to heel toe. I don't know. I find it very difficult to do. And I'm not good enough at it to ever do it. So I would set that aside. Double clutching, I only put on here because I used to know a lot of people back when I was a teen who would swear by driving their car with synchros and double clutching. They said, yeah, you don't need to do it because the synchros. And by the way, the synchros are the thing that make sure that when you engage the gear, that the, the actual gears that are going to engage with each other are turning at the correct speed. So you don't have, so you don't take a tooth gear turning faster than another tooth gear and try to mesh them, right? Double clutching in the big trucks, I don't actually know how they work on behind the scenes, but it's basically like, like Casey said, you take it out of the gear and put it into neutral, and then you have to bring the engine up to speed so that when you engage the gear, the two gears that you're going to engage are moving at the right speed. I think you're actually also responsible for modulating the throttle to get the engine up to speed, and then you engage. And if you don't match the speeds and you try to engage them, you're essentially taking two big metal gears moving at different speeds and trying to mesh them, and you get terrible noises and you destroy stuff, right? But for cars with synchros... I, I, t- I don't know if I just there's this crop of weirdos that I went to high school with, but like, oh, yeah, you should totally double clutch your car with synchro. So I learned how to do it when I was learning stick and I did it for a little bit. And as far as I can tell, it's absolutely 100 percent pointless. Like it's worse. It's slower. It's not fun to do. And there's no reason to do it. So uh, my advice is forget, unless you're driving a, a semi, which, by the way, they probably have automated transmissions now anyway. But like unless you're driving a semi that requires it, double clutching is not a thing you need to know exists or learn how to do um starting in second third yeah i mean this is where you have to know your car's power me have always having weak cars starting in second for sure in the snow is a thing you should do although i would still say that i had to start on a hill in second many of my cars didn't really have enough power to do that snow or no snow um and burnouts you'll just wear through your tires don't do that it's all about getting the power to the road but it's fun burnouts are fun margo do you have anything to add (laughs) tell us that we should all buy uh, drive electric cars I mean, yeah, I mean, A, electric cars do neatly solve many of these problems. Um, but anyway, the, it, it, if you're going to drive stick, like, don't let this conversation turn you off of it. This may sound like it's a crazy thing to do that's really hard, and you have to do all these things to do it right. And the fact is, none of this is necessary. You don't have to do any of this, and you'll, you'll be fine. <laughs> so it's like, I, I drove stick for, you know, all that time, and, and yeah, never had to do almost any of this stuff that, that that's the that's the thing i think about stick shift driving marco you're saying you're you didn't know or care about this and you were fine in my experience when someone says i know how to drive shift a uh, stick there is a wide range of experiences you would get by driving in the car with them <laughs> like lots of people th- like wider than you would expect everyone like oh well you know you don't everyone knows how to drive and people are good drivers and bad drivers but the range of like like the things I've seen people do in a car where they're ostensibly driving stick sometimes boggle my mind. And I don't know if it's because if it's a gap in learning or no particular standards or just people have bad habits, but boy, like, I, I, I don't know. You know, I'm not just saying like valets who like just have to know enough stick to park a car, like people who own stick shift cars and you get in the car with them and you're just like biting your tongue. It's like, what, what are you doing? And like you're jostling around and they don't know how to engage the, uh, the clutch and everything. I don't know why that is. Obviously, it's much less of an issue now because nobody has stick shift cars. And I feel like the longer this goes on and the rarer sticks become, the more this problem will solve itself because the only people who have them are hopefully people who know how to do it. But 
but I don't even know. But anyway, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Continue. You, I, I agree with you. You don't need to know all this weird stuff. You can be happy and just drive a stick and you'll be fine. Yeah. And I, I, like, like Marco said, I mean, this is expert level and extraordinarily fast data dump as to what John and I think about driving a stick, but really and truly you don't need 80% of this. And you probably won't hear 80% of this because Marco doesn't care about it and he'll cut it before it gets released. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just keeping this in. You will hear it from other people who drive stick, though. That's why I think it's important to cover all these points. You'll find somebody who will look like a wise expert and will tell you that you should double clutch your car with synchros and just don't listen to that person. Like, that's why I think it's worth knowing all this stuff, mostly just so you know to dismiss it. But I do think the engine braking one is that's the thing you have to know how to do. If you don't, I feel like your car is less safe because you lo- you have way worse braking power, way longer braking distances. And it's just not it's not a good habit. Do not do not stop your car from 80 on the highway down to zero with the clutch depressed the whole time that's bad for your brakes it's bad for your life learn how learn how learn how to engine brake yeah that, that's actually that's the one thing that like when i was a newbie stick driver like for my first few years driving stick i didn't do that and then i eventually developed that skill and that was like a significant betterment of my of my stick driving abilities i actually don't think it makes any difference in terms of the ability for the brakes to stop the car like i don't think the brake boost is in most cars anyway, uh, driven by like engine RPM, or if it is, it's a very small difference. No, but- it's not the brake boost. It's just that the engine, like it, it, it's not, it's not the, so when you connect a fast moving transmission to a slow moving engine, some energy has to be spent to speed that engine up. That's energy sure. coming okay. out of your speed of the, the vehicle. Like the kinetic energy is being, is being used. You know, the kinetic energy as translated through the wheels, through the axle into the transmission is being expended spinning the engine up from 1000 rpm or whatever it dropped to up to like 2000 right and then you do it over again because you shift to a, lo- a lower gear the engine goes down to 1000 well not only that but but the engine vacuum is doing way more than just like spinning up the engine every time you shift yeah i mean i'm, I'm saying like but spinning the engine because it's moving slowly there's lots of things that make it hard to spin the engine up like you know you're not giving it gas to spin the engine up the entire amount of energy is coming from the speed of the car so you are bleeding off speed th- by using it to constantly spin the engine up from a lower rpm right to a higher one and then repeating that process right and then the second thing is even if the brakes have the ability to stop in the same distance they're you know you're going to produce more heat in those brakes if you have wimpy brakes lots of small cars have very very wimpy brakes and if you're stopping from a high speed they're not good at you know they get they get hot they get worse there's brake fade right especially if you're not in a sports car that's used to that type of thing yeah that's if the you big ask the brakes to do if you ask the brakes to do the whole job themselves you're asking a lot of your brakes again especially if you drive a dinky economy car that has tiny, tiny brakes, maybe <laughs> drum brakes in the back, in the back, and tri- tiny little, you know, discs with you know wimpy calipers in the front. Yeah, it also it becomes more reasonable or more more extreme if you think about like suppose you're driving down a mountain and so you're you're going downhill for like mm-hmm. 15 minutes straight. Like you're you're if you're riding only the brakes that whole time, they're gonna overheat. Yeah, you're gonna have overheating problems, and that's that's no good. They're gonna they catch fire just like in Ford versus Ferrari, right? Yeah, yeah there you go. And and finally, with regard to engine braking, like what if you're slowing down, but then suddenly there's some sort of hazard that you need to speed around? So you want to be in the most appropriate gear for the current speed in the car, because if you're caught unawares and you're in like neutral or something, and then you suddenly need to use the accelerator to swerve around a child or a dog or something, that's not a good place to be. You want to be in gear already. So all you have to do is slide your foot off the brake and onto the gas to get power, as opposed to being in neutral or in way too high a gear, such that 
you're either going to bog when you try to go or you're just not going to have any forward motion at all. Yeah. And if you're in gear, if you're in the correct gear for the whatever speed you're decelerating in, you will have shockingly instant torque response <laughs> when you hit that accelerator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about the the accelerating around a child scenario, but I do, that's what I was getting at before about the sort of habit of downshifting. Just constantly being in the appropriate gear for your speed is just a good habit. Like even even like I said, even if you're just downshifting through the gears, even if you don't even engage the clutch between some of them, just constantly being in the right gear is getting you so that if you did need to use the gas for whatever reason it's ready to go and you don't have this process because the process is not just get it into gear the process is decide what gear is appropriate for the current speed put the car into that gear and then you can go whereas if you just routinely go row up and down the gears in order based on your speed as just sort of like a, a, a habit that you just do without thinking about you will always be in the appropriate gear for the speed and ready to go again and that's you know again that's what an automatic transmission or an automated manual that's what they're doing for you right there and of course they can shift way faster than you can and all these other things but like I mean, that's that's your hint on engine braking automatic transmissions do not put your car in neutral right they they use the engine to help brake the car they as you slow down automatic transmissions will downshift to be ready to be in the appropriate gear and to do you know so yep so will dcts yeah like there you you can't just put the dct in neutral very easily and coast to a stop like it really fights you on that you really it it really wants you to go down through the gears as, as you slow down 